It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Welcome Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And today uh, we have a set of Moby Dick chapters that are completely concerned with carpentry yep it's just all uh planing and cutting all the time sawing there's some filing yeah i guess drilling you know actually okay these chapters do present basically everything that's happening here is carpentry but i feel like we should maybe mention that most of what's happening is is uh crafting an ivory i would consider that as long as you're using the tools of carpentry and you're treating it as wood I think it's fair to say that this is still carpentry, even if the wood in question is, in fact, whale ivory. Okay. I was going to say whale bone, but that's a different thing. That's the baleen. Yeah, it's whale space bone. <laughs> anyway, not whale bone. <laughs> whale space bone. Space whale bone? God. Okay. Um, we, uh, we should talk about this more when we get to the part in one of these later chapters where the idea of, like, viewing anything you do with carpenter's tools as carpentry actually comes up this is true but i think uh i, I agree you just wanted to warn everyone that some of this carpentry may not actually be what you would consider carpentry dear reader if, or listener if this podcast is about anything it's about being pedantic about categories well yeah but i'm just saying you're you're really you're expecting people to be like that's not carpentry that's not carpentry at all i that's not really <laughs> My my drive to be like, are the words I'm using, do they actually mean precisely what I'm using them to mean, is not at all based on an imaginary, like, reader not understanding me. It is a, a totally uh, self-directed impulse. Okay. And I recognize that. Central to, central to your sovereign soul. N- no, no. It, I, it's just a bad habit, is what I'm trying okay. to say. <laughs> um, okay. Uh. But chapter 106. Yeah, so, chapter 106, Ahab's leg. Um, Which, you know, you may have thought we'd heard enough about Ahab's leg so far, but the answer is we can never hear enough about Ahab's leg. Yes, and of course, I mean, obviously, we're talking about Ahab's ivory leg here. The the one of interest. You know, his real leg, his important leg, unlike his, like, just remaining leg. Yes, absolutely. Suppose we could also be talking about the one that got eaten. Yes, I think if you were talking about quote-unquote Ahab's leg, you could either be talking about the one that's gone or the ivory one. You can't possibly be talking about just that boring, healthy flesh limb. (laughs) Sorry, just boring, healthy flesh limb gave me pause. (laughs) So the reason reason that Ahab's leg is coming into discussion at this point is that um, when he was leaving the Samuel Enderby, he was so upset... uh, at uh captain boomer and like needed to get out of there so fast i would say it's more that he was so upset at not finding a fellow like a fellow spirit in captain boomer yeah yeah i mean i, I feel like he was offended by captain boomer's attitude. ah you're saying he might say okay boomer oh my god 
I don't think no, I've, <laughs> because the the tenor of that meme is you know, know, just sort of being like, well, this is the best that could be expected from you. Whereas no, he no no he did expect more. You're right. Anyhow, um, I just was looking for a place to do that pun last entire episode. Re- decided there wasn't one, and I saw it this time. Yeah, I, I respect that. I snatched it from the jaws of irrelevancy within the text. <laughs> In any case, he uh, jumps into his boat, and then during the boat thing, when he goes to... I really love this. Uh, he vehemently wheeled around with an urgent command to the steersman. Like, he turns around to uh, tell something to his steersman, which must be Fidala, um, that he's doing something wrong. And specifically, it's, quote... Uh, it was, as ever, something about his not steering inflexibly enough. Like, Ahab's like, no, you must, like, inflexibly drive directly towards our goal. Yeah. So... As opposed to, like, moving the tiller even a little. So with all this forceful movement getting into and and standing in his boat, um, Ahab kind of jolts the ivory leg and, uh... It sounds like it, you know, like, split along the grain a little bit. Like, I imagine a wooden, like, because if you, like, twist a wooden rod and it breaks, it doesn't necessarily break entirely, but you'll get that, like, little twisted bit, and you'll be maybe able to see, like, holes that have popped open in it when the grain is split. the, the, The actual description of what's wrong with it, the already shaken ivory received such an additional twist and wrench that, though it still remained entire, and to all appearances lusty, Yet Ahab did not deem it entirely trustworthy. So it kind of sounds to me like what happened is Ahab either heard or felt some kind of crack. And he was like, oh, A half-splintering shock. Yeah, and he was like, oh, this is not gonna last. Yeah, he... We'll get into it, but I'm pretty sure Ahab has kind of a reaction to this thing that's sort of like... He immediately feels this sense of... uh, the sense of the instability or incompleteness of the leg, and it upsets him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, to be clear, I, I think there are, first of all, very understandable, like, physical ways that he could perceive there being some kind of oh, yeah, no, subtle, no. like, crack or, or, or... I'm sure he's right. Yeah, and then also, there's very, like, understandable and practical reasons for him to be really concerned about this, because, as is described here, shortly before the Pequod left... Um, so this is a lot. Yeah, he was uh, violently injured by the ivory leg getting somehow jostled out of place and stabbing him in the groin. Yeah, um, I, I'll be clear, I was un, I imagined this as his previous ivory leg somehow inexplicably, like, snapping in half and the sharp end of one of the, and like him having to replace the leg. Yeah. The, but it's not clear. It's possible that it's just that the entire leg came loose from his, like, from where it's locked into his stump, and then stabbed him in the groin, like, just directly with the, the stake. Yeah, it, it, yeah. The, the, the details of exactly what happened to his uh, previous leg and how it harmed him, not really clear. Oh, but... yeah, um, he was found one night lying prone upon the ground and insensible by some unknown and seemingly inexplicable, unimaginable casualty, his ivory limb having been so violently displaced that it stake-wise smitten and all but pierced his groin. Yeah, um... It's... that's a lot. Yeah, it is, it is. And, uh, and, and, um, this, this wound, uh, is, well, first of all, Ahab recognizes, as, as is talked about in detail in this paragraph, that this is... This is basically like a, uh, this current wound 
is basically a direct result of his earlier wound at the jaws of Moby Dick, right? Like, this is a sort of later circumstance that is produced by this earlier... It's an echo, a repetition. It's entirely... It could only exist because of the previous woe that he has had inflicted. In fact, Ishmael takes this as a, um, a time to go for about a page and a half of discussion of the, uh, the ways in which grief can lead to more grief. In fact, argues that um, joy is more likely to lead to grief than grief to joy, and therefore the world is uh, signed in sorrow. Yes. Uh, now, it's not just... It is true that Ishmael is the one actually expounding upon this in the book, but he claims that he Ahab... Cla- yes, yes. He, he attributes this to Ahab's po- uh, point of view. And to be fair, it is more Ahabish than Ishmaelish. It certainly feels like the kind of thing that Ahab might reflect upon. Yes. Um, and and uh, I, I do want to kind of talk about, like, the... Some of the... Because you described, I think, the broad philosophical yes. point here accurately. But I want to talk about some of the details of this, because... So... Um, specifically about like the process by which this is suggesting that grief leads to more grief, whereas joy more often leads to grief rather than joy. Mm-hmm. Um, because so the sentence starts for not to hint of this, which sounds as though it's saying, Oh, well, I'm not going to be obscure here. I'm going to say what I mean directly. <laughs> That it is an inference from certain canonic teachings that while some natural enjoyments here shall have no children born to them for the other world, but on the contrary shall be followed by the joy childlessness of all hell's despair. So, okay, certain canonic, i.e. like biblical, religious, canonical teachings tell us that some natural enjoyments uh, will not produce like the sort of Will not save you. Will not send yeah. you to heaven. Will not produce metaphorically children of otherworldly joy, but instead... Instead, condemn you to hell. Yeah, so this is literally saying there are some, like, joys in life, some some pleasures. That are canonically considered to be sinful. Yes. Whereas some guilty mortal miseries shall still fertilely beget to themselves an eternally progressive progeny of griefs beyond the grave. Which is to say there are things that will not make you happy, but will also send you to hell. Yes, uh, and, and that, in fact, also, uh, com suggests that this idea of an eternally progressive progeny of griefs beyond the grave is also about uh, cases where God will punish your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, which... Unto the seventh generation. Yeah, but, which comes up in, in the Bible, you know? Yeah, I, I think Power Moby Dick is kind of reaching right there. Like, yeah. griefs beyond the grave is not talking about your ongoing griefs within the world. It's talking about someone being beyond the grave that does not mean their children continuing to live that means like the afterlife and that's what he's talking about here i think power moby dick missed on this one okay that's fair to me uh so you feel that the contrast between the the first let's be honest the first sentence in this sentence and the second (laughs) sentence in this sentence (laughs) i think they're normally called clauses but sure well but they are they're multiple clauses. They're composed yes. of many clauses. I mean, this is one of those. I don't know how you refer to the section of a sentence that is subdivided by a semicolon. Um, yeah, I think usually it's just referred to as clauses, and then there's subclauses, I guess. But yeah, it's and, what it is is a gross sentence. Yeah. So, um, so so the, the the contrast that you're seeing is between joys that are sinful and like 
miseries that are also still sinful. Yes, joys that will send you to hell and also miseries that will themselves ensure that you go to hell. Like, that's, that is clearly what seems, especially because if you're going to say, as he says, there still seems an inequality in the deeper analysis of the thing. It's not an inequality if, on the one hand, sure, there are miseries that will, if we're talking about miseries that won't necessarily send you to hell but might continue on earth, that's not really an equality with talking about miseries in hell. They're different types of things, and especially given how Ishmael thinks about things, it would, you know, it would be talking about an eternity of pleasure versus, you know, a few generations on earth. Yeah, no, okay, I think I, I, I'm convinced. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, uh, there still seems an inequality. So, like, all right, we've already laid out the idea that both pleasure and suffering on earth can lead to eternal suffering. Well, with, especially within the, you know, within... I'd say a canonical frame Ahab is more likely to have, where Ahab often speaks of hell and Ishmael sort of tries to claim that he's a universalist most of the time. Yeah, no, that's true. Yes. Um, but the uh, furthermore, there is this idea that um, that, that uh, joy is kind of, you know, is is... Even the highest earthly felicities ever have a certain unsignifying pettiness lurking in them. So, so joy is just kind of a, a mortal, worldly thing. It's temporary. It 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 has no, it has no grandeur, unlike suffering. Well, all heart woes, as uh, Ahab is implied to put it, um, which have a mystic significance, an archangelic grandeur. In some men, an archangelic. In some men, an archangelic grandeur. Yes, he's, we're talking about Ahab here. Yeah, yeah. But yes, this is this is that um, uh, Catskill eagle of the soul. Yep, yep, um, yep. One, Once again. But it's also, uh, very specifically, Ahab is sort of taking the position that this means that this descends from whatever principles or, you know, cosmic necessity creates the world, or, you know, as he says it, um, to trail the genealogies of these high mortal miseries carries us at last among the sourceless primogenitures of the gods. And then skipping a little bit, the ineffaceable sad birthmark in the brow of man is but the stamp of sorrow in the signers. So Ahab is taking the position that because the world spins more in sorrow than in joy, therefore it can be traced to the creators of the world, to its origins, in, you know, the Ahab often speaks of the gods, but I think that's meant mostly metaphorically. I don't think there's evidence that Ahab himself is a polytheist. Yeah, I do think that um, there's a certain sense in which uh, this particular picture of creation is a little bit more, um, like, is, is kind of leaning on the, like, sort of Greco-Roman pagan picture. Yeah. Um, like, uh, um, specifically, I, I think that, uh, the, several things, um, first of all, just the, the repeated plural of, like, gods. Yeah. Um, and then also the phrase sourceless primogenitures, um, I think kind of alludes to the idea of, like, the family tree of the gods, right? Yeah. And we're tracing back to the the first parentless gods, but there yeah. are also later gods with parents, yeah, you know, yeah. which is obviously, you know, connects to the whole, um, the, the cosmogony, the Greek cosmogony. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then there is also this thing about, um, <clears throat> this thing about the, um, the glad hay making suns and soft symboling round harvest moons, which are taken sort of as like, 
symbols of the joy of the gods. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of uh, suggests, I mean, not that the sun and the moon are not seen as like heavenly. Yeah, I, I think you're right that it's vaguely gesturing at, you know, the Greco-Roman stuff, but I don't think it's being specific about it. No, it's, it's certainly. It's more a model. No, I, yes, you're totally right about that. Anyways, this does lead to, um, you know, the idea that we've now revealed something that was previously hidden, which is that the reason Captain Ahab was locked up in his uh, cabin for the beginning of the voyage was not just emotional, but also that he was physically recovering from having been, you know, injured. Yes, and, and like, basically, you know, there was previously, when Ishmael was signing on to the Pequod, he was like, where's Ahab? And Captain Peleg was just kind of like, well, he's he's just like this um and at this point you know we are basically saying like yeah that wasn't really an explanation yep um, or i really like this line uh as touching all ahab's deeper part every revelation partook more of significant darkness than of explanatory light which has remained mostly true throughout the book that when we get a glimpse into ahab's mind there's a lot of ishmael sort of hinting at or saying i cannot fully explain or you know this cannot be spoken of about Ahab's deeper meaning, or he speaks in, you know, metaphorical terms, like that Catskill Eagle in the Soul. Yes, yes. Uh, and there is even this suggestion that, like, basically Ahab's closest friends, even they really don't understand the Im the injury, like, because Ahab won't explain how it happened. Mm -hmm. They just know that he is injured. Um, and so because of this, like, lack of explanation, um, they, 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 uh, it becomes like a kind of supernatural, terrifying thing, and and that's why these friends of Ahab's, whoever they are, I don't really know. Um, I mean, presumably Peleg's one. Yeah, yeah, probably yes. Um, they kind of uh, contrive to hide it from everyone else. Yes, to muffle up the knowledge of this thing from others. Uh, I also want to just take a moment to point out that this is also the very much the Fisher King's wound. If you yeah. look at Arthurian myth. The Fisher King is traditionally uh, injured uh, it, at the hip or about the groin, you know, or in the thigh, all of which are, again, ways of saying groin without saying it in Arthurian legend. Um, yeah, I think one of the ways in which uh, Ahab's wound here is kind of analogous to the Fisher King's wound is the, the vagueness of where it is or yep. how it happened. And it's also... It's it is struck in him by a lance-like object which represents sin and like and misery in the world, which is to say the lance of Longinus in ver certain versions of Arthurian myth, where the Fisher King's sort of generative power and ability to make the land whole is destroyed by this wound, which can never again heal. And I think that if we, uh, you know, Ahab, who is a king, we are many times reminded that Ahab is named after a you know biblical king. Mm -hmm. um, he is the ruler of this ship. He has been in seclusion. He has been injured in this way. But even that injury, even the Fisher King's injury, is merely an echo of the previous originating injury of the loss of uh, his leg, which then puts him in the position of either Adam, we've seen that before, or Christ. Don't yeah. think we've seen that one before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, I think it is worth mentioning that um, the Fisher King's injury is often understood to be a kind of uh, metaphorical or even just like a literal uh, castration. Um, because, you know, as you said, it, it connects to this kind of broad fertility idea that like mm -hmm. the king is wounded and so the land 
can't be like whole and like can't the land can't like do the it, seasons. spring cannot occur yes. yeah spring cannot occur and then also that there is this sense that like the king can't have sons or or cannot his like, line is rested yes exactly um and uh the thing i think that is really remarkable about like ahab as fisher king is that rather than you know in the arthurian versions of this legend uh the the fisher king is you know kind of passive sedentary yeah he, he can't stand up all he is able to do is fish in a boat um yes. and, and just wait for someone who might be able to heal him and you know knights are uh questing to try to do that yes um but ahab ahab has it within his power to make himself able to stand to in a certain sense heal his initial leg wound but he can only do it in a way that uh has the possibility of like repeating that wound right mm, yeah so like it's all it's an incomplete repair it's his own artifice and effort and you know literally taken from the jaw bones of his victims as a uh, as a whaler he is able to compel himself forward on his you know dire quest for revenge but he can't actually he can't actually replace his living leg yes as we will see more with carpentry. Yeah, and of course, it's a little weird actually to say that um, Ahab is the one who contrives to replace his leg because obviously, as we're about to hear, someone else makes it. Um, but I think there is a, a, a strong sense. Well, we'll see that with the carpenter. Y yes. Yeah, the, sorry, go on. I, I just meant to say that I think there's a strong sense in these chapters and has been throughout the discussion of Ahab and his ivory leg that, like, Ahab is ultimately the, in some sense, the creator of that leg. He, he has other people to technically speaking make it for him. Yes, but he is the one who set out on this. Yes, I was I was saying that when we get to the carpenter, well, that becomes sort of obvious yes, in yes. the character of the carpenter. I just wanted to, because we were talking about it as though Ahab mm -hmm. does this all on his own, and I wanted to note that, like, I know that's not true. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting about Ahab is that he is not... He himself does not do a lot. He often, in fact, holds back. Like the Fisher King, he remains in his cabin. But at the same time, he does everything. The entire ship is put in motion by his will. The Pequod's crew is forged together. There's that earlier section that, you know, we keep going back to that talks about isolatos and the idea that Ahab has brought together this crew. And so the way the captain acts is by turning all of the crew into his implements. Everyone involved has been filled up with Ahab's mania and driven um, such that they all pursue his purpose. So I think it is fair to say on some level that anything in the quest for the white whale that is done on the Pequod, Ahab may not have done it personally, but he has set it in motion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's true. <sighs> There's also this really ambiguous uh, paragraph at the end of this discussion of Ahab's uh, injury that says, but be all this as it may, let the unseen ambiguous synod in the air, or the vindictive princes and potentates of fire, have to do or not with earthly Ahab, yet in this present matter of his leg, he took plain practical procedures. He called the carpenter. So this idea that, like, angels or devils may be involved in Ahab's leg, we don't know. But in either case, he'll need the carpenter. Yeah, I, I think this is kind of one of the, this is part of the whole, like, well, unlike the Fisher King, Ahab's just gonna solve his problem, you know? Like, his his wound may be this sort of, like, grand symbolic thing that, like, speaks of the, like, uh, repetition of woe on this earth and the fact that it cannot be healed. Um, 
But ultimately, uh, it is also like just a, a real injury in a real human being. And yeah. it can be dealt with in a in a fully practical way. Yeah, I, hmm. I, I think that's going to be a thing in question for well, the rest of these chapters. Well, yeah, I don't think that this paragraph is saying, uh, th- actually, the angels and devils have nothing to do with it. I think this paragraph is just kind of saying, well, there may be angels and devils here, but there is also just, like, human craft. And and we are now going to discuss human craft. And yes, okay. I know that also the... But literally, this is I'm just saying what the paragraph is saying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess what I mean is... I think that this chapter is extremely ambiguous on whether the ivory leg is actually helping, basically. Mm. Yep. Like, on some level, the ivory leg is repeating this injury to Ahab every time he steps on it and worries that it might break. Ahab is constantly beset by his own loss in the form of the leg, and we'll, we'll see this further in the sections to come. And so I think that there's... I think that basically calling the ivory leg a solution to the problem rather than a practical step towards his revenge or towards his other goals is that i think there's a difference there yeah i see what you're saying i think that's true and that's the thing i wanted to specify yeah i think maybe there is a certain suggestion also that like um it would require supernatural powers of either heaven or hell to actually heal his wound right maybe maybe i just I think it's much more that this is just saying, you know, banishing all that, what Ahab does is very material. Yeah. He is involved in the material. He is acting on the world. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And, you know, uh, the end of the chapter is just uh, Ahab saying, make me a new leg to the carpenter. Yep, yep, and getting out the, also getting the forge out of uh, storage, um, Mm -hmm. because they're going to need to make certain iron pieces for it as well. Yep. Uh, I believe we later learn that it's like the buckle to hold the um, hold the leg on. Yeah. Uh, and then we have chapter 107, which is all about the carpenter. In fact, yeah. it's called the carpenter. Yeah, this this guy, interesting character. Um, yeah, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, can you call him a character? We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So, um, interesting. Let's say literary device. <sighs> eh, eh. We'll see. You'll see why. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so. So, um, you know, Ishmael opens this chapter by saying, like, oh, you know, people in the abstract are, are like, grand and, and, and wonderful and woeful, but, you know, in, in the A grand- wonder, a grandeur, and a woe is high abstracted man alone. Yes, uh, but human beings in specific are, you know, they seem a mob of unnecessary duplicates. But this particular <laughs> figure is actually neither of those things, because on the one hand, he is not, like, uh, uh, grand and abstract, but he is also definitely not a duplicate. He's a he's a <laughs> particular. He's he's a character. Well, he's a, in the way that people say, oh, he's a character, meaning, like, he's a particular individual. Yes, he's not yeah. like anyone else you've met. This, ca- this carpenter is that yeah, kind of... I just want to point out, Ishmael says um, contemporary and hereditary duplicate, so he means... They are both duplicates with other people alive right now, and duplicates with their own, like, family. And like, I of think, the past, yeah. Well, not just of the past, of, like, hereditary, of, like, a son is often just kind of a, a copy of the father, and also similar to other people around him. It's a very, like, schematic way of saying that you most people are, like, of a type or kind of boring. Yeah, yeah. Which, I'll be honest... If there are people on the Pequod who are of a type, they're only of a type with people not on the Pequod, and therefore irrelevant. 
I mean, yeah, that's kind of true. <laughs> yeah, hard to imagine another stub. Yeah, but like, at the same time, I'm sure stub is meant to be a general category of person, a certain kind of practical nihilist, as we've discussed. Someone yeah. who takes with hum- you know, Joker mode. Many people are Joker mode, but Stubbs the only one on this ship who is Joker mode, except briefly Ishmael. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so the carpenter. Um, we do actually hear first about the ways in which he actually is like every other ship's carpenter. Yes. Um, which is that he is kind of like a jack of all trades. Yeah. Um, and and uh, this is clearly something that is true of ship's carpenters in general, and particularly of whaling ship carpenters, just because. You know, there's going to be so many different little pieces of craft to be yes. done on any ship. Yeah, he is an expert in the maintenance of the ship and all of the, what's what's called the, and I really liked this phrase, singularly efficient in those thousand nameless mechanical emergencies continually recurring in a large ship upon a three or four years voyage in uncivilized and far distant seas. Uh, so he just does, he does a ton of wood shaping and, you know, examples are given like, you know, fixing oars that have become, that are like poorly shaped, uh, repairing stove boats, uh, fixing spars that have, uh, broken or sprung, um, you know, generally just doing everything involved with wood, but at the same time, he's also going to do anything involved in just little mechanical things that you need to have done. Yes. Uh, and uh, he does all this from his, his vice bench. Yes, he, um, he has many vices. Uh-huh. Um, he is, you might say he's a vicious man. <laughs> uh, which, you know, obviously, I don't know how, like, prominent the idea of a vice as a mechanical device is in most people's minds, but, you know, it's like a tool that holds something down to a table. Yeah, generally it's a, it's a metal screw attached to two pieces of metal that will, when the screw is turned, one of them will move towards the other. Generally speaking, it's been nailed or itself screwed into a table. Presumably his vice bench is all, you know, locked down so that he can sit things down in it and seal them and, you know, lock them in, which on a moving ship is the most important part of carpentry, probably. Yeah. Like, and it's very clear that uh, there are tasks that he needs to vice things down, you know, put them in the, put them in and grip them so that he can successfully work at them. He needs the world to be held in place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's kind of just a list of, like, all the, so, all of the, like, many little, not strictly, uh, not necessarily strictly carpenter carpentry things that he does so yes. like he uh he files down a belaying pin that is too large he makes a cage for a bird that someone caught he makes a lotion for someone's sprained wrist he paints vermilion stars on all of stubb's oars because stubb got an idea in his <laughs> yeah i love the phrase uh Screwing each oar in his big vice of wood, this carpenter symmetrically supplies the constellation. So he's specifically, he is a shaper of all things and a maker of all things upon the Pequod. And in fact, we haven't gotten to the last two examples, which I think are yep, particularly yep. important. He pierces ears. Uh, and... Sorry, the carpenter drills his ears. Yes. So he doesn't merely pierce them, he drills them. He takes to them with his tools. Yes, he uh, and uh, if someone's got a sore tooth, uh, he can yank the tooth, uh, which may require uh, sticking the guy in his vice. Yes, specifically, the poor fellow unmanageably winces under the unconcluded operation, whirling round the handle of his wooden vice. The carpenter signs him to clap his jaw in that, if he would have him draw the tooth. And I should note that a wooden vice would be, it still has a metal sprue, but the sections of, like, that the vice of like pinching part on the vice, which I guess is just the vice of the vice, 
the jaws of the jaws of the vice um, are wood, so that they have a softer uh, profile than the metal version. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so because of all this, he basically sees everything that he has business to deal with, including the body parts and and the beings of yep. human beings. Teeth he accounted bits of ivory, heads he deemed but top blocks. Men themselves he lightly held for capstans. Yeah, it's all just it's all just wood, it's all just material. To it's him. all just part of the boats. Uh, and this means that he gives off a pure materiality, an absolute uh, solidity, impersonal, I say, for it so shaded off into the surrounding infinite of things that it seemed one with the general stolidity discernible in the whole visible world, which, while pauselessly active in uncounted modes, still eternally holds its peace and ignores you, though you dig foundations for cathedrals. Yeah, so he is, there's this idea that although he is, like, extremely skilled in all these different things, it doesn't really mean that he has kind of like an active human mind. Instead, he is just kind of insensible and even unthinking in the same way that, like, the material world is. He's he is both uncaring for other human beings and also just kind of literally unintelligent. Yep. He's uh described as um having an antediluvian wheezing humorousness and a certain grizzled wittiness, uh, such as might have served to pass the time during the midnight wash on the bearded foxhole of Noah's Ark. It's basically there's this idea and he's like sixty. He's an old man on a ship. Mm-hmm. And he is simply so used to his trade and so used to maintaining the physical world of the ship and so unconcerned with the people there that he himself has sort of uh, dimmed or at the very least, uh, there's this idea of like if a rolling stone gathers no moss, he has managed through a life of wandering to rub what moss he started with off. Yeah, he has no like connections to any human beings um, or even to anything. Yes. Living without premeditated reference to this world or the next. Yet, he was a stripped abstract, an unfractioned integral, uncompromised as a newborn babe. So he is just the schema of a carpenter. He is someone who is purely involved with the material and mechanical world around him. Um, Actually, there's a line down here that fully says, He was a pure manipulator. His brain, if he had ever had one, must have early oozed along into the muscles of his fingers. And there's an amazing comparison also where they basically... Ishmael basically says that he's a human Swiss army knife. Yes. Um, it's, he doesn't use the phrase Swiss army knife because I don't think that was a thing at this time period, but he compares him to uh, one of those unreasoning but still highly useful Multimin Parvo Sheffield contrivances. And then like basically literally describes, you know, a, a, a utility knife. A, a, a common thing. pocket knife, but a little swelled and full of blades of various sizes, as well as screwdrivers, corkscrews, tweezers, awls, pens, rulers, nail filers, countersinkers. Yeah, and so this is basically like the, the the people who use him, his superiors, can just put him to any necessary task. Yep, yep. Yet, as previously hinted, this omnitooled, open-and-shut carpenter was, after all, no mere machine of an automaton. If he did not have a common soul in him, he had a subtle something that somehow anomalously, anomalously did its duty. What that was, whether essence of quicksilver or a few drops of hartshorn, there is no telling. So, he is animated there is a thing within him that animates but it is not a soul yeah this feels like this is alluding a little bit to the understanding of what soul mind and body are Mm. that we've previously gotten with ahab because he clearly has a body and he has like a an animating principle an unaccountable cunning life principle yes uh but he doesn't really seem to have a mind Mm -hmm. um 
And so this this soul unsoul thing in him that keeps life him principle. moving. Yeah, life principle is is just kind of living in his body. Um, yes, and it's sort of it's described as being like a night watchman, and so he constantly talks to himself. He soliloquizes, um, is how Ishmael puts it. He's constantly just talking to himself, but it's described as being like a night watchman talking to himself to keep him awake, where the night watchman is the life principle keeping watch in the very physical carpenter who's going about all his business. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say, this is Gnostic as hell. This is a demiurge. It's not an evil demiurge, but this is, strictly speaking, a semi-sensible, mechanical entity who creates all things in the world but cannot recognize their spiritual dimensions, seeing them only as objects to be manipulated yeah no agreed he he is he is a demiurge um and uh and you know he has like mysterious more kind of conscious superiors yes um he there are there are powers that uh drive him but he is more or less uh, neutral to them and whatever principle drives him is not the same as a soul which is very much the sort of gnostic image of the demiurge is sort of a half you know demiurge being there's there's a whole thing going on there with the word demiurge and like half but the point is he's an incomplete god he is an incomplete creator but he's driven by enough to consistently and constantly create the world in his case you might compare him more to the classic platonic demiurge which is to say the entity that exists between the realm of ideas and the realm of form and is constantly bringing form into existence oh sorry the realm of ideas and the realm of like physical materiality. I said form and then realized that often the ideas are called the forms in Platonism. So it was yeah, a... I did get a little confused yeah, there sorry. for a second. The realm of ideas, also called the forms, and the realm of physical material like stuff and shapes and things that he is constantly shaping and manipulating into existence. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not malevolent is why I think this is interesting. He is not like, you know, this is not an Ophite demiurge. This is a Platonic demiurge. Unless, of course, you uh, have Ahab as the devil. Yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 conception of whether this is like an evil thing that he is doing, uh, I, I I agree with you that this chapter doesn't, in any sense, present him the the carpenter himself as malicious. However, the question of like whether what he is doing is fundamentally good is a mm. question of whether like creating and reproducing the Pequod mm. is a good thing yeah. to do. And I think that's a big question. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I just think that the Carpenter is this this fascinating character. And also, we're getting into a section of the book that just, uh, it's real Abraxas hours. Yeah, like, yeah. It's you know, good. It's... We've got this. We've got a, you know, a constantly creating demiurge who is, uh, you know, this mechanical entity. And it's worth, you know, we've discussed this before where there's this idea of sort of within gnostics of a body mind soul trio and different people have them predominating and so he would be sort of definitionally a mechanical man mm -hmm. that is like literally he's a mechanic but he's also mechanical in the sense that he is only material and he lacks both mind and soul both uh pneuma and gnosis i don't remember but the point being the carpenter is a real weird individual yeah yeah Shall we move on to the next chapter? So the next chapter, Ahab and the Carpenter, is written like a play where it it's is. a dialogue between 
Ahab and the carpenter. And so Mark had the idea that we should <laughs> perform this for you. Uh, and that before we do so, we should flip a coin to decide which of us gets to be Ahab and which of us gets to be the carpenter. Yeah. So basically, yeah, I like, I did write a summary of this, um, but I, I found as I was going that it was, it was difficult to summarize because on the one hand, the stuff that Ahab's saying, like almost all of it is so like directly interesting and, and relevant to Ahab's character in the way that we would want to really get into that I felt like we were probably just going to end up quoting most of it anyway. Um, and then the stuff the carpenter says, uh, leaving aside for now the question of exactly how much sort of depth of analysis there is in the carpenter, because I feel like that's actually something we could argue over a lot. Um, yeah. It is just very hard to summarize in a way that's kind of similar to how Pip's speech was difficult to summarize because it just moves around so constantly from one idea to another and there aren't like a lot of clear kind of uh logical through lines such that like as i was trying to summarize it i found myself just writing like one summary of like each sentence you know yeah and it was just yeah, like I... what am i doing here but i couldn't really su i couldn't really write like a summary of multiple sentences at once because each sentence is doing a different thing yeah i I will say that my approach to this kind of summary would have just been to say the carpenter chatters on about various subjects and then we defer. But I, I know mean, that I did, you don't like to do well, that. Well, I did write that. That's what I had to do. But I, I think that that is selling the content here short. I mean, yes, it's a summary. Definitionally, it is selling it short. Okay, so do you not want to do this? No, I'm saying that... I'm just saying that we have a different approach to summaries, that's all. It's not, I'm not saying one is better or worse. I'm just, it just always slightly amuses me when you're like, this summary, you know, I, I couldn't do this summary without, you know, uh, not giving it, you know, it's justice, doing it justice. It's like, well, yes, it's a summary. It never does it justice. It can't. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, my goal when I write the summaries, for, and like, I'm sure you've all noticed by now, I don't just like literally read the text of a summary. The purpose of the summary that I have is to give me something that I can run my eyes over quickly that hits every interesting point that we might want to talk about in the chapter, right? Mm -hmm. And I just didn't find it possible in reading the stuff that the carpenter says to figure out on my own, without reference to you, which bits of it were going to be worthy of discussion. Sure. That's that's what I mean. Okay. Um. I do recognize that saying something like he kind of uh, uh, mutters to himself about a bunch of different topics vaguely related to the work he's doing right now. I'm not trying to say that that is an inaccurate or unhelpful summary. I think that's true. Um, but I don't think it's useful for our purposes here. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I am going to, because I recognize that reading an entire chapter of Moby Dick Aloud is maybe a little more than well, people need from this podcast. Yeah, I mean, so we've got... We've got time. I'm not saying you and yeah. I shouldn't do it. I'm saying I'm going to put timestamps in here so that if you've, like, read this chapter already and or even, I don't know, maybe you're listening to an audiobook and you've already listened to the whole thing and you're just like, okay, get to the discussion, you can skip our performance and get there. Um, I'll, I'll put that in here we also should should say uh that in in the section we're about to read there is like one just very racist line or maybe i, I guess two very racist sentences because one of them sets up the the obviously racist one um and you know we talked about this and like we could have just skipped them because it is just two things but that felt kind of uh 
Cowardly? Yeah, like a little dishonest. Because, like, this is Moby Dick. We've been talking this whole time about how it's, it, it is racist. And if we're going to, like, actually play out a section, we're going to read it in whole. Yeah, um, but that might be another reason that you might want to skip this if you just don't want to hear us say something that is just straightforwardly saying that black people are bad. Because that shit happens in this book sometimes. Um, yep. So, you know. Uh, now you know. That's our that's our content warning for uh, racism in this chapter. We recorded this chapter for about 11 minutes. I will have a specific timestamp in the description. I still think we should edit in uh, sound effects as well if we're going to do this. Uh, yeah, I mean... You'll have to help me find the appropriate sound effect well, for obviously. the... obviously. The, I, I guess I'm saying I don't know where I'm going to find on the internet a sound that satisfies me as the the, the stamp of Ahab's eye heel. No, no, no. Heel. We're going to foley it. We're going to find like a broomstick and a good piece of concrete. Oh, God. No, but it should be wood. Do you have any wood floors around? I mean... Yes, I'm sure I can find one. Or we have like a wooden door right there or a wooden desk right there. Okay, all right. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I may cut some of this. But I think it's very funny. So, yeah. Um. Anyway, all right. Enough, enough preamble. Shall we just get to this? Well, first we have to flip a coin. Yes. All right. So you're flipping it. So I should sure. call it, right? Yes. Who do you want? I... I said previously, I want to read Ahab. I think we both want to read Ahab. I'm not saying I think reading The Carpenter is boring, but come on here. Okay. I'm calling heads. Heads. All right. Cool. You get to read Ahab. Thank you. Do you want to do the stage directions or should I? Uh, I think it makes thematic sense for the person who's Ahab to also do the stage directions. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> I do! Okay, okay. I... Do you disagree? I think that I... If you really want me to make a thematic argument, I think either of them can be argued to it, because on the one hand, Ahab is the master of the ship and this defining force, but secondly, the carpenter is the one who produces the material universe around both of them, which the stage directions are describing. You know, that's true. That's true. I think there are good arg... What I'm saying is I don't think there are arguments one way or the other for stage directions being read by one of these characters yeah that's totally fair um but you seem to agree with the concept of me doing them so do you mind feel free okay the deck first night watch carpenter standing before his vice bench and by the light of two lanterns busily filing the ivory joist for the leg which joist is firmly fixed in the vice slabs of ivory leather straps pads screws and various tools of all sorts lying about the bench Forward, the red flame of the forge is seen, where the blacksmith is at work. Drat the file, and drat the bone. That is hard which should be soft, and that is soft which should be hard. So we go who file old jaws and shin bones. Let's try another. Aye, now, this works better. <coughs> oh, this bone dust. <coughs> Why, it's... <coughs> yes, <coughs> bless my soul, it won't let me speak. This is what an old fellow gets now for working in dead lumber. Saw a live tree, and you don't get this dust. Amputate a live bone, and you don't get it. <coughs> Come, come, you old smut there. Bear a hand. Let's have that ferrule and buckle screw. I'll be ready for them presently. Lucky now. <sighs> There's no knee joint to make. That might puzzle a little. But a mere shin bone. Why, it's easy as making hot poles. Only, I should like to put a good finish on. Time, time. If I but only had the time, I could turn him out as needle leg now as ever. <sighs> Scrape to a lady in a parlor. 
Those buckskin legs and calves of legs I've seen in shop windows wouldn't compare at all. They soak water, they do, and of course get rheumatic and have to be doctored with washes and lotions, just like live legs. There, before I saw it off now, I must call this old mogul ship, and see whether the length will be all right. Too short, if anything, I guess. Ha! That's the heel. We are in luck. Here he comes, or it's somebody else, that's certain. Ahab, advancing. During the ensuing scene, the carpenter continues sneezing at times. Well, man-maker. Just in time, sir. If the captain pleases, I will now mark the length. Let me measure, sir. Measured for a leg. Good. Well, it's not the first time. About it. There, keep thy finger on it. This is a cogent vice thou hast here, carpenter. Let me feel its grip once. So, so, it does pinch some. Oh, sir, it will break bones. Beware, beware. No fear. I like a good grip. I like to feel something in this slippery world that can hold, man. What's Prometheus about there? The blacksmith, I mean. What's he about? He must be forging (coughs) the buckle screw, sir, now. Right. It's a partnership. He supplies the muscle part. He makes a fierce red flame there. Aye, sir. He must have the white heat for this kind of fine work. Mm-hmm. So he must. I do deem it now a most meaning thing that that old Greek Prometheus who made men, they say, should have been a blacksmith and animated them with fire. For what's made in fire must properly belong to fire, and so hell's probable. How the soot flies! This must be the remainder the Greek made the Africans of. Carpenter, when he's through with that buckle, tell him to forge a pailer of steel shoulder blades. There's a peddler aboard with a crushing pack. Sir? Hold. Well, Prometheus is about it. I'll order a complete man after a desirable pattern. Imprimus, fifty feet high in his socks. Then chest modeled after the Thames Tunnel. Then legs with roots in them to stay in one place. Then arms three feet through the wrist, no heart at all, brass forehead, and about a quarter of an acre of fine brains, and let me see, shall I order eyes to see outwards? No. But put a skylight on top of his head to illuminate inwards. There, take the order and away. Now, what's he speaking about? And who's he speaking to? (laughs) I should like to know. Shall I keep standing here? Aside. "'Tis but indifferent architecture to make a blind dome. Here's one. No, 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 I must have a lantern. Oh, ho, that's it, hey? Here are two, sir. One will serve my turn. What art thou thrusting that thief-catcher into my face for, man? Thrusted light is worse than presented pistols. I I thought, sir, that you spoke to Carpenter. Carpenter? Well, that's... But no, a very tidy, and I may say an extremely gentlemanlike sort of business thou art in here, Carpenter. Or wouldst thou rather work in clay? Sir? Clay? Clay, sir? That's mud. We leave clay to ditchers, sir. The fellow's impious. What art thou sneezing about? Bone is rather dusty, sir. Take the hint, then. And when thou art dead, never bury thyself under living people's noses. Sir? Oh, ah, I guess so. (laughs) Yes. Oh, dear. Look ye, carpenter. I dare say thou callest thyself a right good workmanlike workman, eh? Well, then. Will it speak work thoroughly well for thy work, if, when I come to mount this leg thou makest, I shall nevertheless feel another leg in the same identical place with it? That is, Carpenter, my old lost leg. The flesh and blood one, I mean. Canst thou not drive that old Adam away? Truly, sir, I begin to understand somewhat now. Yes, I have heard something curious on that score. 
Sir, how that a dismasted man never entirely loses the feeling of his old spar, but it will still be pricking him at times. May I humbly ask if it be really so, sir? It is, ma'am. Look, put thy live leg here in the place where mine once was. So, now, here is only one distinct leg to the eye, yet two to the soul. Where thou feelest tingling life, there, exactly there to a hair do I. Is to riddle? I should humbly call it a poser, sir. Hist, then. How dost thou know that some entire, living, thinking thing may not be invisibly and uninterpenetratingly standing precisely where thou now standest? Ay, and standing there in thy spite. In thy most solitary hours, then, dost thou not fear eavesdroppers? Hold, don't speak. And if I still feel the smart of my crushed leg, though it be now so long dissolved, then why mayst not thou, Carpenter, feel the fiery pains of hell forever and without a body? Ha! Good lord, truly, sir, if it comes to that, I must calculate over again. I think I didn't carry a small figure, sir. Look ye, pudding heads should never grant premises. How long before this leg is done? Perhaps an hour, sir. Bungle away at it, then, and bring it to me. Turns to go. Oh, life, here I am, proud as a Greek god, and yet standing debtor to this blockhead for a bone to stand on. Cursed be that mortal interdebtedness which will not do away with ledgers. I would be free as air, and I'm down in the whole world's books. I am so rich I could have given bid for bid with the wealthiest Praetorians at the auction of the Roman Empire, which was the world's, and yet I owe for the flesh and the tongue I brag with. By heavens, I'll get a crucible, and into it, and dissolve myself down to one small compendious vertebra. So. Carpenter resuming his work. Well, well, well. Stubb knows him best of all. <laughs> and Stubb always says he's queer. Says nothing but that one sufficient little word, queer. He's queer, says Stubb. He's queer. Queer, queer, and keeps dinning in it into Mr. Starbuck <laughs> all the time. Queer, sir. Queer, queer. Very queer. And here's his leg. Yes, now that I think of it, here's his bedfellow. Has a sick of whale's jawbone for a wife. And this is his leg. He'll stand on this. What was that now about one leg standing in three places, and all three places standing in one hell? <sighs> How was that? Ugh! Oh, I don't wonder he looked so scornful at me. I'm a sort of strange-thoughted sometimes, they say. That's only haphazard-like. And a short little old body like me should never undertake to wade out into deep waters <sighs> with tall, heron-built captains. The water chucks you under the chin pretty quick, and there's a great cry for lifeboats. And here's the heron's leg, long and slim, sure enough. Now, for most folks, one pair of legs lasts a lifetime, and that must be because they use them mercifully, as a tender-hearted old lady <laughs> uses her roly-poly old coach horses. But Ahab, oh, he's a hard driver. Look, driven one leg to death, and spaven the other for life, and now wears out bone legs by the cord. Hello there, you smut. Bear a hand there with those screws, and let's finish it before the resurrection fellow comes a-callin' with his horn for all legs. True or false, as brewery men go round collecting old beer barrels to fill them up again. What a leg this is. It looks like a real live leg filed down to nothing but the core. He'll be standing on this tomorrow. He'll be taking altitudes on it. Oh, hello. I almost forgot. A little oval slate. <laughs> Smooth ivory, where he figures up the latitude. So, so. Chisel, file, and sandpaper now. And that is the end of that chapter. Uh, that was enormously fun. I hope you also enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.
Um, if we if we ever do something like this again, I will have to let you be Ahab. Yeah, because most of this was Ahab talking about how dumb the carpenter is. I that is why I said we should flip a coin. <sighs> Anyways, there are things worth talking about in that whole sequence. Yeah. Uh, but since we did just spend a significant amount of time on that sequence, we probably shouldn't go into them super in depth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. We still have two chapters to do in this uh, in this episode. Yeah, I know. I, but I do want to talk about this. Of That's, course. I, the whole reason I wanted us to read all this was so that we could talk about well, it. Well, sure. I'm just saying we should talk about it and get on with it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there is this whole... Uh, thing of like ahab talking about you know weird ahab stuff and the carpenter not understanding him yeah because the carpenter is entirely involved in the practical and mechanical element whereas all of the uh sort of meaningful and symbolic elements of his work are completely invisible to him or do not exist to him whereas ahab is only interested in the symbolic elements to ahab this leg means things whereas to uh the carpenter he's all about oh you know um if I had time, I could make one of these that would, like, look better than a living leg. You'd be able to, you know, scrape and bow on it. It would all be fine. You know, the knee joint would be complicated, but I could do that. And it would be better than a living or even, like, a, a you know, another artificial leg because it wouldn't require upkeep and care. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. But I, I also think that there is actually a certain, like, even though... Yes, the things that Ahab says are kind of positioned as, like, high and, and, and lofty and the carpenter is, is supposedly, like, unintelligent. I do think that, like, both of them are just kind of talking without reference to anything else around them, you know? Yeah, but most of what the carpenter does for most of this is reacting to Ahab. Like, the carpenter is not presenting counter-interpretations of what's going on. He's just trying to run behind Ahab's interpretations enough to successfully understand what job he's supposed to do. Uh, like that thing yeah. with the lantern, where he, where Ahab mentions two lanterns for eyes because Ahab's talking about this sort of idealized man that he would could create, unlike Prometheus's small and frail versions. And uh, the carpenter's take on this is, I don't really know what he's... Oh, he wants lanterns. Well, I've got two lanterns here. Yeah. You know what it has the same energy as? It's the same energy as, ah, you have drawn the two of, of cups in a tarot reading. That means you will get two cups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, th that's fair. Um, yeah, I, I, on some level I don't disagree with you, um, but, but I guess I, I, I do think that, I mean, I think that we are meant to take, I don't think we are meant to take the, the carpenter himself as thoughtful, but I do think there is thematic content in what he says. Oh, there is, but that thematic content is at least partially about his incomprehension of Ahab. It's his... Yes. It's that he's... He is trying to produce this thing, and as Ahab says, Ahab is indebted to him. He cannot, in fact, walk without the help of the carpenter and the blacksmith. He is... He requires other people to pursue this task he cares so much about, and it gnaws at him. And that's part of why he has this whole interaction where he's, like, you know, constantly trying to talk to the carpenter on Ahab's level about things Ahab cares about, and it's completely meaningless to the carpenter. It's, it's whether it's flying over his head or is, you know, just ranting doesn't matter. What matters is that Ahab is alone. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I don't think that Ahab is trying to get the carpenter to understand the things he's talking about. I think he's just talking. 
Um, yeah. I, I think Ahab talks about this kind of thing when he's alone. We've literally seen scenes of Ahab when he's alone doing yes, this kind of thing. Yes, he's a monomaniac. He talks about this all the time, but here is where he's kind of upset by the fact that he is not understood by someone who he is so closely linked to as the guy who's literally carving him a leg. Yeah. And, you know, he can briefly be somewhat understood. He tries very hard with this, like, look, here's my phantom limb, and here's your limb, and they're in the same place. Does this imply something about the nature of reality to you? And the carpenter goes, I, I think I missed a figure in, like, the calculation of this. It's not about, he's not, like, having any kind of sentiment or feeling about it. He's like, I think my internal abacus for adding up how many legs there are supposed to be there went wrong. And he's right, because he later talks about three legs when in fact there were only two right yeah i mean yes uh i I feel like i mean yes but isn't that actually like isn't the idea of like well if somehow there are two like soul legs in one place when there's only one flesh leg like that means that in some way my math is wrong like okay obviously yes that's a very quotidian response from the carpenter but I feel like it's also saying something about, like, if that's true, then the foundation of material reality is wrong, right? Like, I, I mean, feel like that's what's being communicated here. And yes, I know the carpenter isn't thinking that, but I think Ishmael is thinking that. I think that's entirely possible. Like, I'm not saying that this isn't a meaningful statement. I do think that the... Like, yes, but that's also what Ahab is saying. He's saying, why could there not be some kind of soul or interpenetrating thing present at all times? And isn't that kind of uncanny? Ahab is saying the idea of the soul separate from the body is uncanny. It means you're never alone. It means that you are surrounded by things you cannot see. He's expressing that the world is strange and full of wonders, and that's not getting through to the carpenter. No, it's not. I, I feel like we're talking at cross-purposes here, because it... I'm just trying to argue that half of this chapter has content in it. I mean, yes, it does, but a lot of that content is expressing incomprehension on the part of the demiurgic figure of the carpenter for, like, higher and weirder things. What I'm saying is that the things he says express ideas that are not in his head. And I think that's part of his role as this demiurge figure. And, And so, for example, I actually think this thing where he gets confused and talks about three legs... One leg standing in three places and all three places standing in one hell. Like, as you say, that's just him making a mistake because Ahab was talking about two legs in one place. But I also think that that is, like, of possible symbolic significance. Sure. Like, I think it alludes to this sort of three-part human existence that we've been talking about. Like, the 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 soul, the mind, and the body. Um, and the, like... I just, I think what's going on with this figure is that he, in keeping up this kind of apparently relentless commentary of nonsense, uh, he keeps saying things that that speak deeper than he recognizes. I guess, but I think that's trying to make him into a second pip, whereas I think he's sort of the opposite. He's talk because he's not talking nonsense. Everything well, he says is very straightforward and practical. What I'm kind of trying to say is that the relation pip has to heaven, the carpenter has to Ahab. Mm, I I'm sorry, I just don't see it. Okay. Like I that's really not Okay. I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's okay for me to have a point that you're not convinced yes. by. But, like, the carpenter is a comic figure in some respects. He's 
and he's playing the counterpoint to Ahab. Ahab is absolutely driving the conversation, and structurally, Ahab is the one presenting these ideas that then via their, you know, like, in a Shakespearean style, are rude mechanical here, hears the thing, and then has a sort of humorous interpretation of it or misinterpretation of it, which does shed some light or help, like, develop the thing, but I think matters much more as humorous counterpoint, as affective counterpoint, than as intellectual counterpoint. Yeah, all right, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I feel like maybe that's about as much as we can do with this chapter for now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also just things that get said, like the bit where Ahab's uh, like new model human is a whale. Yeah, actually, yes. Let's talk about Ahab's new man. <laughs> yeah, where he's like, you know... Um, if, you know, Prometheus, the blacksmith, is about making a new man, I'm going to order one after a desirable pattern. I'm going to get I'm going to get the human I want. I'm going to make him 50 feet tall, uh, a chest like the Thames Tunnel, so like a huge and barrel chest, uh, legs with roots to him to stay in one place. Okay, so I get what you're saying about this figure being a whale, but I think the legs and arms are not very whale-like. Not particularly, although legs with roots to him that did make me think of a single tail. Mm. But the thing that really matters is a quarter of an acre of fine brains and putting a skylight in the top of his head. Yes, the skylight in the top of his head, 100%. That's that's, that's a like, blowhole. That's the, the signature where you're like, oh, this is a whale man. Yes, this is like weirdly whalish and like, but also specifically titanic and capable of taking the physical universe and like made of brass. Yeah. It's, you know, it's Talos, the brass man of Greek mythology. Prometheus being involved. Um, and, but, and this is this is also, like, this is a figure who can't see outwards, but can yes. see inwards, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, I mean, that's just, like, a fascinating and weird idea. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's, it, this internal introspection is very important to Ahab because... Now, with his injury, all he sees in the world is Ahab. As he says, it always reflects back his own self. Mm-hmm. So Ahab sees in the world Ahab and the whale, and that is all he sees. And everything either leads to it or stymies him on his progress. And so, to some extent, Ahab does not need to see outward. In fact, when he has a lantern thrown up in front of him, his response is that uh, thrusted light is worse than presented pistols. Yeah, he sees it as as a threat. <laughs> yeah, it's light, you know, light for me, it blinds, it, you know, frustrates, it's in some way, a, yeah, like a threat or a challenge. Um, I'll also point out that um, when he says uh, that the um, the uh, smith should forge a pair of steel shoulder blades, there's a peddler aboard with a crushing pack, do you think that's talking about Atlas? Oh, yes, I think that would make sense. Um, there was no citation for that on PowerMobyDick.com. Really? Yeah, I know, right? I definitely, when I got to that, I was like, this is obviously some kind of illusion, but I don't know what it is. I think it's very believable that he's talking about Atlas, though. Since he's talking currently about, like, Titans. And... Yeah, yeah. And, like, I think just if you're trying to think about a, a like, mythological or literary figure that might be alluded to who, like, carries an impossible weight, I think yes. Atlas is an obvious... Yeah. Uh, one. Um. Oh, I just love the phrase, there's a peddler aboard with a crushing pack. Like the idea that Atlas stands on the Pequod. Yeah, yeah. Um. Also, his um, his desire to get rid of the sole of his leg, his phantom limb, canst thou not drive that old Adam away? Yeah, yeah, I don't fully understand what is meant by him calling his phantom limb that old Adam. It's the original. It's the oh, first. Oh, yes, that makes sense. Yes. 
It's what was and is no longer. And it's that he can't get rid of that originating painful memory of himself as whole, and therefore he, you know, has this weird overlapping space. Yeah, that does make sense. Uh... And, and this, I think, kind of connects with his desire to make a new man, right? And, and I think it also, like, in some sense, like, Ahab wants the idea of, like, human existence, and maybe even of his own existence, without reference to, like, the past of human life, you know? And also, I think, to, like, that mortal inter-indebtedness that he speaks of, mm-hmm. um, that will not do away with ledgers, this way that he can't be this entirely cyclopean, untouchable, like, entity that he, in his spirit, knows himself to be, but his body is frail, you know, remembers its trauma, has its, you know, this uh, leg that keeps breaking. Ahab is stuck in a material world that does not respect his majesty. That's true, but I also think one part... So you're right that that what... First of all, yes, you're right that it is, like, materiality that, that ties Ahab to other other people and means that he needs to rely on them. Um, but I also think that um, that there is an element in uh, mortal interdebtedness, um, which inter-indebtedness. is... Inter-indebtedness. inter thank you. Um, <laughs> which is not just... Uh, which is not purely... Um, material, but is also kind of um, like is is also something else, I suppose. In in the sense that, like, first of all, to like bring in the idea of like Adam, the idea that mm-hmm. like what Ahab wants is to be kind of like a self created human. Um, the what what we derive from Adam, the the deadedness that we derive from Adam, is original sin. I mean, um, it is, but it's also literally progeniture it's like you know your your physical body your um, you know your inheritance of a of flesh is coming yes. down from adam as well yes. and that's when he speaks of that old adam about his leg i don't think he means that his previous leg was somehow sinful no no i don't think so but i i guess i'm just trying i think maybe what is going on here on some level is that uh ishmael or sorry ahab conceives of like his ties to other humans and his inheritance from Adam as purely material. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that is not, exp- that is not the only thing those things can mean. Yeah. That makes um, sense. And, and, uh, yeah, I also think it's of interest for one thing. It's of interest that what he wants to do to dissolve himself away from like mortal inter indebtedness is to melt himself into a single vertebra. So he's not actually asking to escape materiality. No, but he's asking, he is, he wants to compound it into a single point to avoid all of this, like, messy external stuff. I think that that, I think that that's more metaphorical than literal. I don't think he would ever want, he actually wants to be physically a tiny object that can't move. Then how could he kill the, uh... Well, no, of Like, you could also, because you can also take this when he says, dissolve myself down to one small compendious vertebra. You could also take it as, I want to dissolve my soul down into a single tiny point within my body to minimize, like, so that I don't have, like, instead of having a phantom leg, he has a anti-phantom entire body, Mm. except for that one tiny point, presumably at the back of the skull, but that's just how I imagined it, where 
all of his sort of spiritual self can reside and it won't bother him the way his leg does. Yeah, that would make a certain kind of sense. Yeah, I do think that's a real weird turn of phrase when he's like, yes, I will melt myself down into a tiny but very full bone. It's just like, what the fuck are you talking about, Ahab? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, speaking of things where, I, what the fuck is he talking about? I do want to also talk about this auction of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah, so, so PowerMobyDick.com cites some of this where, okay, first of all, it just describes what the Praetorians are, which is the, the Roman Emperor's bodyguards and police force. I think that, police force that's is a, a li- really weird way of saying it. They were, they were personal bodyguards of the Roman Emperor, which meant that they also, like, did his will. But what they're famous for yes. is deciding which emperor is gets to remain an emperor and will, like, basically uh, do an uh, a coup d'etat and remove the emperor when they decide the emperor has gone against their interests and, you know, theoretically the interests of Rome, but really the interests of the Praetorians, and then they'll let someone else step up to be emperor. The important thing, so there's actually a, the concept of Praetorianism survives in, like, political conversation to mean when a state is not run by the military, but the military decides who is allowed to run it. So if you have a military that will oust a president or assassinate them, but there are elections for the presidency. It's just that the presidential candidates have to pass muster with the military. That's called Praetorianism, and it's a kind of, like, hands-off military junta. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it, Power Moby Dick seems, seems to think that the auction of the Roman Empire is referring to... So if I understand it correctly, the Praetorians assassinated the Roman Emperor and installed a new one, like, multiple times in history. It happened multiple times, because after it happens once and then the next guy doesn't get rid of the Praetorians, it's going to happen again. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but the auction seems to refer to a specific case in which they, as Power Moby Dick says... In 193 AD, the Praetorian Guard assassinated the Emperor Pertinax and sold the throne to Didius Julianus. Um, so I... First of all, Pertinax is a really good name, but secondly, ouch! Yeah, so, I mean, you know, and the way Wikipedia puts it also... Oh my god, sorry. I just... Didianus was... uh, Didius Julianus was Roman Emperor for nine weeks, from March to June, 193. Yeah, year (laughs) of the five emperors, baby! Uh, yeah, so, so... Wikipedia also says Julianus ascended the throne after buying it from the Praetorian Guard. Yep. So it really does seem like at least the the general understood historical perspective on this is literally, yeah, he bought it. Yeah, um, I mean, look, uh, you got to do something with those uh, denarii that are burning a hole in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have no idea if denarii are actually the correct uh, coins. Yeah. I, I just said one and was immediately like, I don't think that's true. It seems it was actually sesterces. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, no, there was literally bidding for the the title of emperor. You know, <sighs> and then he devalued the currency. Amazing! Amazing! <laughs> oh, king shit. <laughs> I mean, no, uh, emperor shit, and not for very long. Because when the people that well, just put yes. you into power are immediately like, wait, these aren't worth as much as. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, that's not. It, <laughs> I, it notes that he was stabbed to death by a soldier. Oh my god, that's so funny. Yeah, this was the second of the Year of Five Emperors, which I feel like suggests, it's like, okay, one emperor being assassinated, that's relatively normal. (laughs) It's an unusual year, but it's not an unusual decade. But then, like, it's the second guy who really starts to make it a trend. (laughs) Nine weeks. (laughs) Slightly over two months of being Roman Emperor is the point at which you just have to go, I don't think you thought this through. 
Oh boy. Also, uh, looking at the Wikipedia page for Year of the Five Emperors. Not to be confused with Year of the Four Emperors or Year of the Six Emperors. But I really feel like the band started to go downhill by Year of the Seventh Emperors. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, okay. That's like the historical event being alluded yeah, to yeah. here. But what does... I mean... So what does Ahab mean? I am so rich I could have given bid for bid with the wealthiest Praetorians. I think he probably means in spirit, yeah, like so in, he... in his sense of self. I doubt he means in terms of the, like, oil in his... Uh... Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. He means, like, like spiritually or, or sort of, like, in grandness of soul. Yes. Um, and, uh... And yet at the same time, he, quote, owes for the flesh and the tongue I brag with. He, like, he is trapped in this inter-indebtedness of mortals uh, to, you know, the maintenance of his flesh requires other people. Yeah, and I guess part of the reason why I wanted to talk about all this Praetorian stuff is that I think it's interesting to the theme that we've seen before of, like, Ahab is king, and, uh, you know, he is kind of suggesting, like, I am so grand in soul, I am such a king, even such an emperor, that I, like, could and, and like, should have uh, been able to be Roman emperor, but instead I am, like, inter-indebted with... Uh, you know, everyone. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even in his metaphor, much as in the oft-repeated idea of, like, Ahab as as Ahab, as a, as a biblical king, mm -hmm. there is, a like, a sinister undertone here where it's like, okay, you could have bid in that auction. But look where that got that guy. Exactly. Uh, so, the, so Your inter-indebtedness does not end with the fact that you can pay off the Praetorians. You're in debt to them forever for the throne. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's definitely an irony there. And I don't think he's, given the fact that he's talking about an auction and Praetorians, I don't think that Ahab is entirely unaware of the irony there. Yeah, no, I, I think that Ahab is is aware that, like, this kind of, um... Autonomy? Autonomy, yeah. I was about to say sovereignty. Sovereignty is also a good word for it. That he feels as though he should have. I think he is aware that it is actually, like, impossible in history. Yes, it is not a thing you can have. And he's very mad about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, then to just very quickly go through the Carpenter's, like, final monologue. First of all, there's that whole bit where apparently Stubb calls Ahab queer all the time. <laughs> just moving on past that. I, I mean, look, <laughs> he's right. In context, he mostly means strange. I, yes, okay, Ben, you don't have I to know. explain the joke. I know, I know, I, sorry. I just felt weird about reading that bit. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyways, however, I will say that the bit where it immediately goes from very queer, and also, here's his bedfellow, <laughs> his stick of whalebone that is also his wife. Yeah. That's what I'm saying! Like, I, you know, I... It is always kind of tempting when you're reading 19th century fiction where people use words like queer or gay to be like, ah, ha, 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 ha. But also, like, yeah, there is something queer about Ahab in, like, mm -hmm. the modern sense. Um, I also like the little bit where he's more or less saying, oh, yeah, Ahab's going out into deep water like a heron. It's, you know, it's a physical quality of his being very tall that allows him to engage in, like, deep, you know, philosophical insights or whatever. Whereas I'm short and will therefore drown. Yeah, he's, he's like, tall and has, like, lo a long, skinny leg. <laughs> like a heron. Um, so there's pe different people. Like, it's funny because this is the material correlate for that idea of the Catskill Eagle in the soul, which I've brought up, like, three times now um, on this episode. The idea that there is, like, a quality of Ahab that is grand and soulful and deep, and that this exists in some people and not in others, which, again, has this very Gnostic 
energy to it. Here's the mechanical man saying, oh, it's a question of physical qualities, right? Like, I'm short, so I can't understand these deep things, when in fact it's a question of, like, spirit and mind, that things that just don't exist for the carpenter. Yeah, yeah. He's attempting to explain it, but, you know, he's explaining it in a kind of comic way. Um, there's also, I think, a more straightforward, like, criticism of Ahab, which is, you know, for most people, legs last a lifetime, but him, he's just, like, hammering away at them. He has no regard for his body, and therefore that's why he keeps breaking this leg. And you can see that as kind of the material's response you know, albeit a relatively small one, to Ahab's grandiose questions of, you know, soul and spirituality and, like, you know, interindebtedness is sort of like, okay, yeah, but practically speaking, if you treat your body like a cage, it's going to be a worse body for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, it is true that Ahab, like, rides his ivory legs hard until they I mean, he literally just broke one by being incredibly frustrated and, like, like, it was in a fit of pique that he managed to smack that thing and twist it until he needed it replaced. Yes. I wonder how he got that injury. Because I don't think, like, it's like, oh, it's unimaginable. We have no idea what incident it was. I'm willing to bet that it was Ahab in a moment of anger and not, like, some kind of spiritual entity or unseen force kicking it out from under him. Yeah, no, I think he stomped really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's probably true. <sighs> so, yeah, there's also a brief mention of the um, resurrection that's just wild. Because, again, he has only a physical metaphor. Like, the resurrection is someone coming around and filling up the old beer barrels of bodies with, with you know, whatever goes in it again, with life. And, uh, you know, real legs and false will be filled up. The idea that at the resurrection, Ahab will be confronted with all his ivory legs and, like, have to figure out how those work. Yeah, that is actually a very interesting idea because, I mean, you know, it, most Christian ideas of the resurrection say that, like, bodies will be healed. Yeah. You know, but this suggestion that the resurrection will involve calling for all legs, true or false, does suggest that, yeah, exactly, as you say, at the resurrection, Ahab's going to have all his false legs with him. And have to do some kind of accounting for that. Yeah. <sighs> and then, you know... um, then it's just, yep, yeah, this will be his leg. This will be a this will be a real live leg of a person, a part of his body, and he'll be using its like built-in calculator space. Oh, I should do that. Yeah, yeah. So that's Ahab and the Carpenter. Yeah. The next one involves Ahab and what you might call a very opposite figure to the Carpenter, because it's Ahab and Starbuck in the cabin. And Starbuck is, after all, the Christian, spiritual, conventional member of the crew. Yes. Uh, so the the kind of practical inciting incident for this chapter is that they are pumping uh, pumping the ship as usual, and there's there's oil in the water, which suggests okay, one of the casks of oil, or maybe many of them, has sprung a leak, and this is you know a big problem for a whale ship, or you know presumably a big problem for a whale ship because they're going to lose a lot of that precious precious oil yes um I, I don't think you need to say presumably it's very straightforwardly stated much concern was shown yes uh and at this time they are they are close to uh taiwan and uh the north of the philippines um which means that they are also kind of on their way towards uh japan um which ahab is interested in i think it has been previously suggested... I mean, didn't he... He was dismasted off Japan, right? Uh, Wasn't he? I don't 
I thought he was, maybe there was a, uh, I, think I there thought was, he was dismasted off of the uh, like Cape of Good Hope. There might have been a situation where a ship was dismasted off Japan. Yes, and... yes, there was. There was an instance where a ship was dismasted off Japan, and he was like totally cool and untouched through that. I, I think, though, it has also been previously suggested that maybe Moby Dick is sometimes sighted. Yes, Japan, Japan is near the whaling grounds, like the, the line. Yes, or... but I I thought, maybe I'm misremembering. No, no, he may be heading to Japan before heading down to the line. I, I think it, I think at least this chapter suggests that Ahab is particularly concerned with the yes, coast of Japan. Yeah, there's, there's a whaling grounds off of Japan is what there is. And Ahab thinks that this is one of the places where he, he might meet Moby Dick. Yes. Whereas right now, they're just sort of in an in-between space. Yeah, so as they are starting to get somewhat close to Japan, he is, like, looking over charts of those waters. Um, and uh, he's doing that when Starbuck shows up to say, you know, uh, excuse me, there's there's oil. The oil is leaking. Um, you know, we need to get the casks out of the hold and check them. Um, we must up Burton's and break out. Um up Burton's being, you know, Burton's are a type of tackle. So they need to raise up some tackle, get all the casks out of the hold. Yep. Um, and uh, Ahab is having none of it. Yeah, basically Ahab is like, we are so close to Japan. I am not going to spend a week, like, sit, staying in place. Because they're not going to be able to, like, sail while they're in the middle of Yeah, especially because they're bringing up very heavy things from the hold. It makes them very top-heavy. So yeah, like Ahab is like, okay, we're gonna just stop here, like reef all the sails for a week while we get all the casks out of the hold and check them. Like, no, like no way. No, no. Um, In fact, what he says is, you know, um, you know, we're getting there, and uh, Starbucks like, sir, either do 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 that, sir, or waste in one day more oil than we may make good in a year. What we come twenty thousand miles to get is worth saving, sir. And Ahab replies. So it is, so it is, if we get it. And Starbuck's like, I meant the oil! And Ahab's like, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, so... Uh... Like, Ahab's like, yes, what we came 20,000 miles to get will be worth something when we get the white whale! Yes, uh, and, uh, you know, he, he... Ahab says this thing about, like, oh, like, leaks. I'm all a leak myself, which I assume basically means, like, you know, I am... I am wounded. I am, like, spiritually leaking, and there's no way to plug it. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, so, like, who cares if our uh, casks are leaking? You know, that's so much less important. Yep, yep. You know, I'm, you know, something is leaking out of me. Uh, he also says, Yet I don't stop to plug my leak, for who can find it in the deep-loaded hull, or no, now hope to plug it even if found in this life's howling gale? And I think he might also be, like, talking about mortality. He might be just mm. talking about the, you know, life is constantly slipping away, and in life's howling gale, no one can, like, find the place where life is dripping out that leads us to death. So we fa- we forge on regardless. Yeah, yeah, I think that may be true. Um, and, uh, you know. <laughs> God, the most, um, let, I need to talk to the manager moment Starbucks ever had. Yeah, what will the owners say, sir? Which is, I mean, it is, let me talk to the manager, but he's also right. If they spill all their oil in the middle of the ocean, Bildad and Peleg are going to be furious. Well, yeah, but let the owners stand on Nantucket Beach and out yell the typhoons. What cares Ahab? Yeah. But- Ahab's like, no, this is a one-way trip. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah, and like, they're not here. Uh, th- th- I can't see them. Yeah, thou art always prating to me, Starbuck, about these miserly owners, as if the owners were my conscience. 
But look ye, the only real owner of anything is its commander, and hark ye, my conscience is in this ship's keel. On deck! Like, you know, just get out of my way. Leave. The, the Pequod is a fast fish to Ahab. Yes. Not to the owners. Yes. He's 100% saying, look, I never cared about oil, oil and whaling. I'm here to kill Moby Dick. And you are currently getting in the way of that. What do you think that means? Yeah, and he's also just kind of making the point that, like, look, I'm, I've got the power yes. to assert my authority here. Um, and uh, this is one of those times where, I mean, this is... This is Starbuck going to the utmost of his ability to object to things that Ahab says and does. Yes, it's it's such a such a piddling rebellion. Yeah, it's like like he he reddens. He says, Captain Ahab, a, a better man than I might well pass over in thee what he would quickly enough resent in a younger man. I and in a happier Captain Ahab. He's like saying, Look, I realize it's it's wrong that I'm angry at you and resenting you for doing this thing. And if I were a better person, because you're old and sad, I wouldn't, but I do. Yes, you're right. That is basically what he's saying. And, uh, <laughs> God. Do you want to read this line? No, you can go for it. <laughs> Devils, dost thou then so much as dare to critically think of me? On deck. Ahab's just like, you're having thoughts in your brain that disrespect me? And Starbuck's like, no, no, I'm just asking you. I'm just trying to get you to understand where I'm coming from, sir. And like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Now, I will say, okay, it is true that Starbuck is providing some pretty weak tea here. However, with this degree of resistance, with this sort of like, look, I'm not telling. I'm just kind of asking, suggesting. Ahab points a gun at him. <laughs> like, yes. Ahab just pulls a gun on the guy. Yes, what the guy did is, you know, um, he says, uh, Sir, I do entreat, and I do dare, sir, to be forbearing. Shall we not understand each other better than hitherto, Captain Ahab? And, uh, frankly, I don't think that, like, Ahab re responds in the way that a captain can respond, which is to say, you're not doing exactly what I just told you to do. Because Starbuck is disobeying an order. He was ordered on deck. And he's staying and talking. And now he's talking in this really conciliatory, like, I'm just trying to be your conscience, sir. And Ahab's saying, but you're not obeying my physical command, pulls musket off the wall and points it on deck. And what he says is, there is one god that is lord over the earth and one captain that is lord over the Pequod on deck. Yeah, I look, I, I get what you're saying, but I am, I just am trying to make the point that, like, it, like... Starbuck goes this far, and you and I can argue that it's not going very far at all, and this is the kind of response he gets. Well, How could he possibly, like, have a stronger objection? I mean, yes, that is why Ahab is doing this. Ahab is preventing Starbuck from going further by pointing to a specific, like, a specific disobedience. That is to say, he says on deck, Starbuck doesn't go on deck. That is a specific disobedience that by the laws and usages of the sea, he has the right to do whatever the hell he wants to make sure people obey. And he is, so he is doing it in order to try and force Starbuck's obedience. But we'll see that he starts with that and then he backs off. Like Ahab, you know, having leveled this, this gun and Starbuck now physically obeys. He does what he is told. He leaves, but he sort of half calmly, that's what the book says, half calmly says, you know, uh, don't, you know, do not beware of me. You, you know, you obviously that's a laughable concept, but beware of Ahab. 
Yeah, I... Beware of thyself, old man. Yeah, like, he's basically saying, like, you... Starbuck is kind of saying, like, look, I... I don't know that he's so much saying it is laughable that you should beware of me, but rather that I know you wouldn't believe for a second that I am a threat to you. But understand that what you're doing right now, Ahab, is a threat to yourself and your plans. Like, basically, like, Ahab, I am going to listen to you right now. And so I understand that that makes you think that I am not in any way a threat to you. But, like, what you're doing is not productive, even towards the things you want. I think that's what let Ahab beware of Ahab I think that he's saying beware of your own... Like, I think Starbuck's meaning is your plan is self-destructive overall. And what Ahab takes is the thing I'm doing is not practical for my plan. I don't think that Starbuck is saying look, this isn't the best way to go about your plan, because Starbuck doesn't think there is a best way to go about the plan. He thinks the plan is pure self-destruction, and he can o- and he's only held back from commenting on it by Ahab's iron will and intense personality. Yeah, no, this is fair. I think you're right that on some level, Starbuck's advice here is like, Ahab, you're in spiritual danger. The thing you're doing is self-destructive. And what Ahab takes away from it is, hmm, yeah, if I really am this high-handed, I actually may end up with a mutiny on my hands. As we've seen before in the book, there's this idea that Ahab needs to at least maintain the cover of trying to do some whaling. Yeah, yeah, he needs to keep things going normally, and there's been various theories as to why. But I do think that, to some extent, Ahab was kind of daring Starbuck to be a better man than he is, or... You know, and Because, like, it is from this, from this rebellion, because that is what it is, because this is technically a small, a tiny mutiny, because he did disobey an order and had to be ordered, like, three times and have a gun pointed at him. The definition of a mutiny is only doing what you're told because someone's physically pointing a gun at you. Sure. You know? Um, and then Ahab's like, hmm, you know, this is actually, like, Starbucks showing spirit and dedication to this position and that means maybe i'm pushing this too hard you know and he says when he returns you know uh having like used the gun as a crutch mm-hmm. just like let, let like not thinking just using the musket as a crutch has walked around his cabin a bit thinking then he comes up on deck has put away the gun and quietly says to starbuck thou art but too good a fellow starbuck and then shouting to the crew tells them to raise burdens and take up the casks yeah. He decides that actually start. he's going to take Starbucks' advice, which is, I think that this is not purely Ahab being like, oh, oh, I've been, you know, too high-handed, it's impractical, but also him saying, like, mm, no, Starbuck is a, you know, Starbuck is in fact a useful mate. He has given good advice, and he is also not, he has not betrayed me, even though there was this moment of, like, resistance, he still did not threaten he you know he tried only to give me advice starbuck is when he says but too good a fellow in some sense i think what he means is starbuck is too good a fellow for his own good he's going to continue obeying me and genuinely try to help me even though we are at fundamentally cross purposes in this yeah i I think you're right i think that's that's kind of what that suggests Uh, yeah it's almost really uh ahab saying well starbuck beware of starbuck you know (laughs) yeah and you know 
it were perhaps vain to surmise exactly why it was that as respecting Starbuck, Ahab thus acted. So, you know, we're going to keep trying, but the book is saying, oh, it's maybe impossible, but it, I do like the phrase, it may have been a flash of honesty in him, or mere prudential policy, which under the circumstance imperiously forbade the slightest symptom of open disaffection, however transient, in the important chief officer of this ship. So you have two concepts here. One, maybe Ahab was like, okay, yeah, this is what I said I would do. This is the right thing to do as a captain, so we should do it. And the second thing is, well, maybe he just can't have Starbuck going around acting openly disaffected or saying, he pointed a gun at me and refused to up burdens because that could lead to actual mutinies. So he does the thing here to allay Starbuck. But I think it's maybe a little bit more character driven, you know, not yeah. purely prudential. Yeah, I think there's even maybe a certain sense of like, even if Starbuck didn't breathe one word to anyone of what happened below decks here, the simple fact that an obvious problem arose, Starbuck went below to tell the captain about it, and mm. then they didn't do the thing that you would obviously do in this situation is going to raise questions of, like, what happened between Starbuck and Ahab? Like, why isn't Ahab, mm -hmm. like, what's the conflict between Starbuck and Ahab? That, that would become... I mean obvious to people well there is i think the conflict is already obvious because remember starbuck is the one who spoke up against hunting the white whale until well, ahab cowed him I, I i just mean this thing about the slightest symptom of open disaffection however yeah. transient i think even if starbuck doesn't say anything that sense of disaffection is mm. already there yeah no i mean i guess what i'm saying is that i think it has already been there from the start so it's the symptom it's starbuck letting loose about this in any way you know expressing it directly rather than allowing it to be sort of pushed below the surface by the normal acts of whaling. Yeah, yeah. I think that's nice. Right. Uh, we do have one more chapter. Yeah. Uh, Queequeg in his coffin. Um, uh, yeah, this is, this is a, an exciting one. Mm -hmm. It's Queequeg. It's, you know, we like Queequeg. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think we've ever been like, oh man, I wish there were less Queequeg in this chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I hmm. I feel like there must have been some passage, and I, I'm a little embarrassed that I can't bring it to mind right now, but I'm sure there has been some section where we're like, we wish that this very racist thing had happened with Queequeg, right? Yeah, like, the bit where Queequeg specifically does, like, ironically says something negative about, using a negative connotation is the concept of Native Americans. That That did happen. But the chapter itself was really good, and Queequeg, if he hadn't specifically expressed it in those words, it would have been a great moment. Yeah, you know, I think that's basically true. Like, whenever there's stuff with Queequeg where we're like, ah, this makes us feel weird about liking Queequeg so much, it's never, like, a whole chapter like that. It's, like, one specific thing that he says. And it's specifically, the, I think the big thing is just that the way his language works, the fact that it's I dialect, that's, that's kind of exhausting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think that actually comes up in this chapter. No, he says uh, he says one word, or possibly one sentence in this chapter, and I do look forward to talking about that. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, let's get there. Uh, so um, this follows up directly on the last chapter with the you know the casks that have been leaking oil. They have up burdens. Exactly, and uh, they you know, up they... burdens. Sorry. I said up burdens rather than upped burdens. Oh, I you spoke. You said it so quickly that I thought I didn't understand your correction. <laughs> I thought you said the same thing twice. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, so yeah, they are getting all the casks out of the hold, um, and like the leak is not in. I guess sort of like the 
top layer of like most recently stowed casks. And so they have to keep pulling out deeper and deeper casks and like, you know, basically everything they have in the hold, not just the oil, but like all the, you know, the fresh water that they have stowed and the, the food and everything. The staves for uh, making barrels, the uh, hoops. Um... Yeah. And uh, just barrels are covering the deck. Um, yeah, I like the, um, there's two things I really like in this paragraph. One is the idea that, like, you know, uh, so deep did they go, and so ancient and corroded and weedy the aspect of the lowermost puncheons, that you almost looked next for some moldy cornerstone cast containing coins of Captain Noah, with copies of the posted placards vainly warning the infatuated old world from the flood. Yeah. And one thing about this that's interesting is that I, I personally do not remember Noah warning the old world about the flood. Uh, I mean, well, now we're going to have to open the Bible. I guess. Uh, see, this is, this is, the, do you remember, you maybe didn't see this, but the other day, my friend Crystal tweeted, uh, guy who reads the Bible Wikipedia, but not the Bible. And unfortunately, that's me on these episodes. <sighs> so now I'm going to have to read the actual Bible to, you know, keep up my bona fides. Or you can just use Wikipedia. Come on. But I don't, here's the thing. We want something actually very specific, right? We want to know if Noah went around telling people about the flood. Yeah. I, that might not actually be on the Wikipedia summary. Okay, well. I, <laughs> did you expect to get out of this without uh, looking up some Bible information? Guys? Yes! Why? Because it's entirely incidental to the chapter. I just wanted to mention my impression because I thought he was making, I thought he was invoking, you know, more of the... Uh, the biblical prophets like uh, Jonah, who well, get told to burn people. I'm just saying, if you wanted to say something specific about a thing that a character does not or does not do in the Bible, you should have expected that I would want to look it up somehow. <sighs> okay, okay. <sighs> so, all right, I'm looking at it. This is this yeah, yeah. Is... No, we were, that was the paragraph. Yeah, no, I just wanted to tell people this is Genesis chapter six that I'm looking at. If you want to. Follow along. Um, and I don't think that Noah does anything to yeah, warn yeah, anybody. No. Explicitly, it's because everyone else needs to die. Yeah, everyone else is iniquitous. That's right. So, yeah, and, no. And God explicitly says, you and your family are fine. End of sentence. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Like, this idea that, like, uh, there were... There were placards warning everyone that the flood is coming. But they didn't listen. It's it's much more like uh, it's a it's very much trying to be like no 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 Noah tried to save everyone else that became you know water tossed corpses. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a this is a more sympathetic picture of Noah, um, or possibly of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, fair. Like enough. if it's like you will go out and warn everyone, and all the righteous will come to you instead of like, eh, fuck them. You will build an ark. Yeah. Specifically for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but yes, it's a... It is a less harsh image of uh, of the Flood and very much has more of a sense of, like... Or at least has a very strong sense of, oh, it's it's their fault. They didn't listen. Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, not listening to wardens from religious figures is the exact thing that just happened with Ahab. So it's interesting to me that the Flood is getting cast in those terms because... Pretty consistently, there's the idea that whales and whalemen could survive the flood. That the flood is somehow 
not a danger to them because they already live on boats. Uh, but at the same time, there's this sense of you're being warned by God or by his prophets and not taking that advice and continuing on the terrible quest. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think that Starbucks... I, I think I get the parallel that you're drawing, but I don't really think that... Personally, Starbuck. Starbuck. There's also Gabriel and various other... Well, you said just happened, so I thought you meant I mean, the I, I do chapter. Think, I do think that the, the idea of turning back from warnings, not necessarily, like, literally prophetic, because I don't think the book is straightforwardly saying, ah, yes, this person has received word from God that Ahab must stop his quest, but the idea that these are the more mild, traditional, and uh, religious specifics yeah and exhortations so um i definitely agree with you that there's a sense of like ignoring warnings in general that the last chapter has it i think i just wanted to mention the specific thing where i feel like uh there are times when um starbuck has been given the opportunity to take the role of like a biblical prophet and has like turned it down oh so you're saying he's jonah no, because, because Jonah does turn down. It. Yeah, but Jonah makes it there eventually. I don't think Starbucks <laughs> is going to. Like, I well, guess what it... I'm saying is the position of a prophet like Jonah, or like the way that this chapter is claiming Noah was, even though that's not what Noah is like in the Bible, is the role of like saying things to people that they don't want to hear and maybe can't accept. Mm -hmm. Um, although actually, again, that's. Now I'm the one who's being slightly inaccurate to the Bible because actually they did hear Jonah. <laughs> yes, the, the thing with Jonah is that it, where they were like, yeah, okay. And Jonah's like, oh shit, God said he was going to smite them. And now I've made God a liar. <laughs> um, <sighs> Which is not the situation Starbucks in even a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically, I, I just think that actually... Or, hmm, there is the possibility that... Uh, Starbuck could be made a liar in the opposite direction, where he says, God's going to smite you for this impiety, old man, and then if he doesn't get smit. Well, smote. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we'll see Smitten. what happens, I suppose. But are you good? Smote, I think. I think it's smote. Are, are, are I you think, good? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've decided it's smote. <laughs> um, okay, so they're taking all the, all the barrels out of the hold, and uh, it turns out um, it's specifically the um, harpooner's job to do this or like I, it's not clear to me obviously they couldn't be the only ones going down into the hold and getting barrels but I guess there's some sort of sense in which like they're the ones who have to like go the deepest or like deal resolutely with the... manhandle the clumsiest casts and see to their stowage I think it's basically you're the biggest and the strongest therefore you have to do the work here yeah, that's probably the logic. Um, anyway, the point being that uh, Queequeg has to go down into this, like, damp, uh, musty hold, uh, and he gets sick. Yep, gets a terrible chill which lasts into a fever. <sighs> and we get an extended and kind of horrified description of him, like, uh, becoming sick and thin and wan, his eyes having this, like, incredible luster and deepness as his as they get sort of hollower around them yeah uh you described that as though it was uh like kind of a physical effect like his 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 face is becoming hollow and so his eyes appear to get larger which i i think is like literally what's being described mm -hmm. as happening here but um but the way that ishmael talks about it it doesn't actually sound like a visual effect it sounds like a spiritual one i mean um, i 
I think Ishmael is taking a visual effect and interpreting it spiritually. I mean, yes. I'm just saying, like, um, that, uh, you know, he's not, he's not just saying that his eyes appear to grow larger, but they became of a strange softness of luster. Like, his eyes are glowing. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, or shining, I guess. Um, and, like, expanding into eternity. Well, specifically, like circles on the water, which as they grow fainter, expand. So his eyes seem rounding and rounding, like the rings of eternity. Yeah, so, and, and like, there's this sense that, like, as he grows close to death, Queequeg's thoughts are becoming, like, uh... Well, Deeper and holier? Yeah, and, and, like... Higher? Awful, in the sense of, like, being something that one might have awe towards. Yeah, there's a very odd sentence, which is, um you know, saw as strange things in his face as any beheld who were bystanders when Zoroaster died. Yeah. That's a... That is a fascinating comparison point, given that there are, I'm reasonably certain, various Christian figures who also died in an important way. Well, he's obviously not comparing them to Christian figures Oh, here, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, he compares, he compares the idea of, like, sort of Queequeg's, like, strange high thoughts on the verge of death to those of Zoroaster or a dying Chaldee or Greek, mm-hmm. uh, I think it is is quite clear that he's comparing them to quote unquote pagan figures. Mm, that's yes, that is. I think you're right. Um. Also, speaking of like philosophy and, and high thoughts, I do want to note an earlier uh, thing, which was saying that um, because the ship has pulled all its stuff out of its hold, it's very top heavy. The hold is empty. A lot of its ballast, which is basically just food and drink, has been pulled up out of it so you know there's sort of a worry that if a major storm if a typhoon came upon them they just fall over however they're fine but there's also the lovely metaphor of top heavy was the ship as a dinnerless student with all aristotle in his head which you know there's this ongoing thing where ishmael is uh like that about uh education yeah yeah (laughs) yeah ishmael has a lot of like silly things to say about students um, well, clearly he's the student, right? Like, well, yeah, no, for sure. Um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so basically everyone believes that Queequeg is about to die. Um, and uh, Queequeg uh, decides to ask to have a coffin made for himself. Um, because basically when he first saw coffins in Nantucket and realized that, like, you know, Nantucketers are, are buried in a box of wood. Uh, he decided that he liked that idea because it's somehow similar to the the customs of his own people of, um, you know, putting a, a dead person in a canoe and floating it off to sea. Yeah, specifically says a dead warrior, and I get the uh, I get the sense that it's like a an upper class thing or like a, a sign mm. of status. Yeah, that this is a this is a sort of honored burial. Exactly, uh, or obviously not burial. Honored funerary, yeah. right? We do also learn something about the beliefs of Queequeg's people, which is that uh, they believe that the stars do, in fact, are like islands or in some way connected to the ocean, such that in this burial rite, someone can basically sail off to um, you know to the heavens quite literally across the ocean. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it, it, it basically, uh, Israel claims that Queequeg's people believe that the, that the oceans of the world eventually flow into the heavens. Like, yes, become the, the sky. Yeah, that like 
the, the sky, space itself, not only, you know, we've often talked about it as like being like an ocean or, or being an ocean of itself, but they, you know, literally believe that it's continuous with the world's ocean. Yeah. There's also this uh, cute little sort of, uh, well, cute but grim metaphor, which is he desired a canoe like those of Nantucket, because throughout this paragraph he's referring to coffins as canoes, because he first understood them as the canoes that would be used in the burial practice. Um, desired a canoe like those of Nantucket, all the more congenial to him, being a whaleman, that like a whaleboat these coffin canoes were without a keel, although that involved but uncertain steering and much leeway down the dim ages. Yeah. So the idea that a coffin, being keelless, will uh, fly more quickly across the water and be more congenial to the whalemen, but also its destination is less certain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, essentially, yeah, Queequeg wants to be buried at sea in a coffin, not wrapped in his hammock, as would be the typical way of burying yeah. a sailor at sea. He wants to float rather than sink. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I, yep, yep. Um, he specifically says... Uh, you know, the usual sea custom is tossed like something vile to the death-devouring sharks. Whereas in a canoe, you would be, uh, you know, floated off. Yeah, yeah, like, and presumably you'd be or, you'd be proof from sharks for, I mean... I, until I, the coffin breaks apart or floats ashore, I guess. Yeah, it does seem to me like eventually something would probably happen like that. Yeah, but, but the <laughs> same is true of, their, of the traditional burial canoes, so... Yeah, yeah, no, of course. I, um, I th- what I'm saying is that I think that he's just... I think he is right that this produces a very different sort of funerary arrangement than wrapping someone in a uh, hammock and tossing them overboard. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, so, of course, uh, the carpenter is called. Yep. Uh, and, you know, um, I think it's nice that they were like, you know what, sure, we can do this for him. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that, uh, I don't know if this same... Um, courtesy would have been extended to uh someone who isn't a harpooner you know yeah that's i think queequeg an... is an important personage yeah yeah oh you, he's a warrior well yes yes yes, <laughs> yes correct um <sighs> but yeah so they, they they call the carpenter and there's some like dark wood aboard that was specifically cut from um says the lackaday islands which are uh apparently in the arabian sea yeah um also, uh and they've had a number of different names because it sounds as though basically uh, Anglophone mariners just mispronounced or uh, like restructured the actual name of the islands to sound more like an English word. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's typical. Yep. yep. Um, yeah, I didn't even in in earlier in this episode uh, when I was talking about where the Pequod is now, I referred to it as being near Taiwan and the North Islands of the Philippines. That's not what it says in the book. As this book basically always uses place names that are not identical to the ones that either are used in the English speaking world today or are used by the people who currently live there. Um, and I, I just sometimes, you know, casually translate. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think our readership would have necessarily understood if you said they were sailing by Formosa. But I think no. <laughs> listenership. I think our listenership would be much more likely to recognize where Taiwan is. Yes, no. I, that's what I'm saying, I guess, yeah. is that, like, I, I understand why you said Lackaday Islands here, rather than Lackadive Islands, which I think is what they're called today. Um, uh, it says, actually, now, well, uh... so I, I think that it's, it's, I think the situation is that in common English, uh, 
parlance, people call these islands the Lacadives or the Lacadive yep. Islands. Um, but also, that is not what like the people who live there necessarily call them, because these islands are part of India today, I believe. Yep. Um, and and uh, also had their name changed by an act of parliament in 1973 to Lakshadweep. Ah, yes. So I guess this is, you know what this is? This is like, um, I'm probably not precisely the same, mm-hmm. but it's, it's sort of similar to like Bombay versus Mumbai, where like those are obviously, one of those is kind of like an Anglophone corruption yeah. of the other. Um, and, but you would still potentially, like a, a modern English speaking person would probably still understand the name Bombay because it was yeah. in use, you know, in living memory. It's yeah, not, yeah. it's not just a name that goes back to the 19th century. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, there's also the interesting thing that the, um, first of all, the, uh, the lumber that is used for this is described as coffin colored, which there's this implication that coffins are made of dark wood. And I was not aware of that, that like that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, me either. Um, I, I, I was not familiar with this concept either. And, and I think um, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to figure it out, except that I think when it talks about, yeah, when, when, when he talks about Queequeg noticing coffins for the first time. Yeah, he time, calls them dark canoes. Yeah, little canoes of dark wood. But yep, yep. if if that part hadn't been included, when it later refers to the wood they've got as coffin as colored, coffin colored, I would not know what that meant. Yeah. They, they do later say, you know, these dark planks, etc. So there's definitely a sense of these being, you know, dark in color, dark in purpose, or whatever. Uh, also described as heathenish, which, given that you're making a coffin out of it, is a very odd term to use. Like, I'm not sure what makes wood heathen. I mean, I think that it came from a heathen place. I guess. But I mean, like, it, it, it was, quote, cut from the aboriginal groves of the Lacadae Islands. Like, I think that's okay, what makes but, it heathenish. I guess. I, I just find that a very weird use of heathenish, especially in the general context of the book, where, like, the, the concept of heathen and Christian or pagan and Christian have such specific, like, symbolic meanings. I don't know how wood can be that has been cut can be like particularly vibrant, energetic, and like, you know, rough when it has already been made into planks. I, I really think it's, well, okay, I think it maybe it's, like, I, I still think the thing that I mentioned about how if it comes yeah, yeah, from Yeah, like, no, I, I think you're probably place, right. The other thing that I think may be going on here is a skin color thing. Ooh, yeah, you could easily be right. Um, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I get what you're saying about how, like, heathen and Christian have these symbolic reference but i don't think that's actually what's happening here at all mm-hmm. um yeah oh god also the carpenter uh is described as uh with all the indifferent promptitude of his character uh took queequeg's measurements from the coffin including making little chalk marks on queequeg as he goes yes which he just he treats all people as a length of wood yeah yeah and uh and he after doing this uh says ah poor fellow he'll have to die now Wait, Which was that like, was that the carpenter? I think the carpenter. Well, I guess I don't know. I thought it was just a random sailor from Long Island. I, I guess because of the, the 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 context here, where the, the paragraph before that line is talking about the carpenter, yeah, and the one after it is talking about the carpenter, but it does say, "Ah, poor fellow, he'll have to die now." Ejaculated the Long Island sailor. So I guess yep. if if this book has previously established a character from Long Island. And just expects us to recognize him by that epithet. Uh, I know there's at least one Long Islander in, like, the section that's a bunch of different sailors talking to each other. But 
I don't know if that's meant to be a random Long Island sailor who's just there to be pithy in a presumably stereotypically Long Island way, or if the carpenter is from Long Island, but I have not, I just went and like skimmed over the carpenter chapter. I'm not finding any evidence that he is from Long Island. So this is a mystery. Yeah, I, I don't feel inclined to track this one down. No, but I, I do um, think it's funny. Yeah. I will also say that I think the carpenter is always just called the carpenter. So I would be surprised if this were he. Yeah, yeah, you may be right. I, I, It seemed like a thing the carpenter would say because it's sort of like, the, the the perspective is something like, well, now that he's got his coffin, he's got to die. You yep, can't the, not use this tool that I made for you. The work is the work is under is being undergone. Yeah. Um, which oh. felt like the kind of perspective that a carpenter might have, you know, sort of indifferent to the concepts of human life and death, except in as much as they concern woodcraft. Yep. Yep. Um, and various other mechanical handworks. Yeah. So yep, uh, he just makes the coffin. It's described in an incredibly businesslike way. There's a brief description of like how he marks out measurements, but there's absolutely no, like, there's no symbolic play in how he makes the coffin. The carpenter just receives material, produces object, returns object. Yes, and uh, and then uh, Queequeg insists that they, they bring it over to him so he can look yeah. it over. Specifically, this is after the carpenter shoulders the coffin and goes forward with it asking, yeah, do you need it yet? Are you ready? Like, that's the moment that's, like, really, like, come on, man, have a little DC. And the, the crew are like, come on, don't br- don't come and ask if he's ready for the coffin yet. We'll let you know. And Queequeg's <laughs> like, no, no, I want the coffin. Yeah, yeah, everyone is like, go away, what are you doing? The, the, the indignant but half-humorous cries. Uh, but but Queequeg is like, no, this is, this is what I want. Bring it over here, please. I do, in fact, need it right now. Yeah, and... Um, uh, there's this line that, you know, um, of all mortals, some dying men are the most tyrannical, and certainly, since they will shortly trouble us so little forevermore, the poor fellows ought to be indulged. So everyone's like, well, you're dying, so here's yeah. your coffin, I guess? Queequeg, uh, considers it carefully, uh, puts in, like, um the, like, metal part of his harpoon. The... Yeah, yeah, he actually, well, there's a whole list of objects. Yeah, I just wanted to specify that the the, harp, the whole harpoon won't fit because the mm. pole is too long, right. so he gets out the metal part of the harpoon as well as, like, ship's biscuits, some pillows, uh, fresh water, um, some woody earth scraped up in the hole of the foot, I assume, for symbolic reasons. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, or possibly just as a footrest, right? Yeah, maybe. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, he's basically, he's, he's appointing himself for his travel to the heavens. Yep, uh, it'll be um, comfortable. Uh, and he lies down in it, and it's like, uh, hmm, okay, uh, bring me Yojo, you know, his little uh, his little icon, and uh, then holds Yojo and calls for the hatch to be closed. Yeah, they and they close the coffin lid, and, and like many coffin lids, this one has like a, a hinge so that the, the part that covers the face can be opened. Mm-hmm. So they close the lid over the rest of him, but the part over his head is open. Um, and it's, you know, as though he is, as though he is like lying in state at his funeral, yep, yep. right? Um, and uh, uh, this is where he, he says that like one word or sentence uh, while he's lying there in the coffin, he says, Rarmai, which uh, Ishmael translates as, it will do, it is easy. Um, and then he's like, okay, I, I can go back to the hammock. Yeah. Uh, but before he uh, decides to go back to the hammock, 
Pip shows up. Yeah, I mean, let's not move on to that so quickly. I, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, Queequeg actually being in the coffin. Yeah. Um. Uh, or at least specifically, I want to talk a little bit about Rarmoth. Um. Oh, I was I was thinking we might uh, wait for you know get through the rest of the chapter, then go back to that. But up to you. I guess I um. No, if you prefer to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, I just think, like, you know, this is where it is, so I want to talk about it. Okay. Um, just because, uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to see if this was, like, an actual, you know, like, a real word, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it is. Um, I just, you know, did some, like, quick kind of, like, internet research to try to find if anybody had, you know, found a real language in which this is something people say. But... Mm-hmm. I didn't find anything like that. What I did find in like the various kind of scholarly articles that I found talk that mention this line, um, I did find out that this is the last thing Queequeg says in the book. As dialogue. Yeah, I'm yes. It's the last time he said like it's the last time we read words he said. Yeah, this is the last I guess what this is the last thing that might be described as like direct Queequeg dialogue. And I this isn't really mm-hmm. quite direct dialogue, it's not in quotes. It is uh, in mine. Oh, it's not in mine. <laughs> huh. I, I don't really know why, but anyway. Um, yeah, it's not in quotes in Power Moby Dick. Huh. Weird. Yeah, but, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh, it is know, supposed to be the words he said. Yes. It, it, this is not like the uh, the idea that this is the last thing Queequeg says in the book. Not totally shocking in that, like, he doesn't. There's not, generally speaking, a ton of direct Queequeg speech. There's also, mm-hmm. we, we do often see cases of, like, Ishmael describing what Queequeg said rather than directly quoting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would imagine there might be a little more of that. But, you know, we are getting close to the end of the book. And uh, this is a very final moment for yeah, Queequeg. Yeah. Like, this is... This is really him accepting death, right? Yeah. Um, like it will do. It is easy. Yeah, like I I can handle this. This is this is good enough. Yep. Yep. Um, I will say that later in this very chapter, there are not not dialogue, but like he Ishmael does do that thing where he glosses things Queequeg said later in this chapter. So. Yes. Yes. So yeah, this is not the last. This is not Queequeg speaking for the last time in the narrative. It's just the last Queequeg quotation. Yes. <sighs> so, uh, after that, or actually, I guess before that. Well, this... so, yeah, Queequeg asks to be put back in his hammock, but before that actually happens, um, as you said, Pip shows up. Oh, oh, I read that as, yeah, no, no, I think you're right. I had initially read it as, like, Pip showed up before he said Rarmai and asked to go back to his hammock. But I think you're right that what what is meant is in the interval between him saying that and being returned to his hammock, uh, Pip shows up. Yes. Uh, and he, Pip has his tambourine. You may recall that Pip sometimes plays a tambourine. I think he did that at the party, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of, like, entreats, he, 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 he calls Queequeg poor rover. Uh, you know, he, Pip, much like Queequeg, views what, views, like, Queequeg's impending death and, like, cast, being cast into the ocean in a coffin as, like, a a journey. Yeah, because it's gonna float off. Yeah, I know, I'm I'm not saying it's not in some sense literally a journey, I'm just saying Pip is kind of 
playing in the same like metaphorical space. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and do you want to just read this section because it is it's an interesting. Y- yeah. Okay. Um. I. I mean. I. I. I don't know that I. I feel like we've read a lot this this episode. Okay. Um. But uh. But yeah. He he like. He basically like uh calls on Queequeg, who is about to like take this journey, you know, potentially over the entire world, right? Because he's just going to float out into the ocean. Yeah, if the curries, curves carried those sweet Antilles where the beaches are only beat with water lilies. Yeah, he asks him to seek out one Pip. Uh, Who's now been missing long. Yeah, so basically, like, the, the Pip who lives on this ship right now is not, understands himself not to be Pip and understands Pip to be lost somewhere, maybe in the Antilles. Yeah, and I think you can also read this as he's saying that Pip died because Queequeg's going off to, you know, the afterlife, to away from life, to death. And Pip is saying, you know, would you seek out one Pip who has gone missing in this way? And, you know, there was this previous idea in Pip's section where he has his weird revelation that Pip's soul was drowned. Pip's soul left, but his body survived. Yeah, and I think that... I would have to flip back to be totally sure about this, but I, I think that they may have been in the area... Oh, no, they wouldn't have been in the Antilles, no. Mm-hmm. They weren't in the Antilles when that happened. Um, So, yeah, who knows why that's the place that Pip thinks his wandering dead soul may be at this point. I think it's just meant to be sort of presented as distant and kind of paradisical. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, uh... And, uh, you know... Then he he starts like playing on the tambourine, mm-hmm. uh, which which he you know he says, "Oh, I found Pip's tambourine." He doesn't. Yep, yep. Again, yeah, he's still sort of denying that he is Pip. And, yes, uh, he's uh, he's suggesting that you know um, Pip's I guess body and tambourine were left behind, but Pip is gone. Yeah, um, and uh, and Starbuck. Ah, uh, this, this <sighs> you know this is very because okay, Starbuck kind of glosses this. Yeah. Uh, by saying um, that this is like, supposedly, according to Starbuck, there are situations where people in fevers seem to sort of speak in tongues, right? To to speak in like ancient languages that they couldn't possibly have known. But then uh, when this is looked into, it always turns out that they heard someone speaking this language in their early childhood. So first of all, Starbuck is insisting that like feverish speaking in tongues always has like a sort of mundane explanation um yeah and uh that is neither it's nonsense that you think sounds like an ancient language or you know they are actually like receiving some kind of knowledge they didn't have but rather that they must have had it from childhood and it's you know and hidden and it's been unlocked yes uh but then uh he's comparing pip's situation and saying okay that's what's happening to pip but what he is like remembering from earliest childhood and speaking to us now is something from heaven. Um, so he is willing to credit the idea of some kind of like supernatural speech in Pip specifically. Yeah, but it's specifically the supernatural speech that aligns directly with his own theology. The idea that, you know, we are sent at, you know, coming out of paradise or out of heaven in some sense. The soul is descending. Yes. And I think that this is a very interesting, like this is, uh with the idea that the the person or the being that is speaking in this chapter is identifying himself as not being pip but as yeah. being 
as you say, in some sense, like Pip's body, or maybe even like, I think that there's a possible understanding here um, that like, this is some kind of entity that is possessing the otherwise empty Pip's body, you know, because yeah, Pip's soul I, has departed. I think that's a read you could do, but I don't think there's, there's no like mention or uh, gesture towards that in the text. Yeah, yeah. My, my point is mostly that um, if there's some sense that some kind of message has entered Pip from beyond the world that is not actually Pip's soul, um, I think, as you say, this is uh, this is Starbuck presenting an explanation that fits Starbuck's uh, frame and, like, comforts him, but... Um, yeah, I mean, Starbuck clearly doesn't think Pip is missing. Starbuck's like, oh, you know, Pip's gone mad, but in that madness has, you know... Uh, you know, remembered or like a man in a fever, recovered some element of earliest existence, which in this case is, you know, uh, connected to um, Starbucks' own theology. Yeah, and I guess I'm just saying we kind of we kind of know from like the earlier Pip chapters where Pip's mad knowledge comes from, and it is, you know, in some sense a divine source, but it is also the, the depths of the ocean. It's not really heaven. Yeah, he's, or taking a slightly more like, you know, Pip saw things in some sense, you know, floating out on the ocean, he, you know, broke, he was traumatized. And I think that you can also read this as, you know, he is hoping for something or expressing something and Starbucks like, oh, he must, he must know something metaphysical when in fact, I think it's just as much Pip expressing despair and regret about what has happened. Yeah, that's fair. I, you're right. We don't have to see something metaphysical here for it to be comprehensible. Like, <laughs> we can also say that Pip is someone who, like, believes himself to be dead. Yeah, or, um, well, we'll see what happens in the next paragraph as well. Yes, so so Pip speaks again, and, and he's kind of, uh, you know, he's continuing, uh, I think, with the way he's speaking, or events believe that he's continuing to, like, eat his tambourine and kind of, like, like yeah. sing or chant. Um and uh, and he starts uh, repeating that uh, Queequeg dies game, meaning like, you know, Queequeg is is game to die. He's he's like he's ready for this. He's willing. Um, yeah, yeah, and also he's you know um, generally brave, resolute, playing out to the end. Yeah, like que Queequeg is 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 up for the challenge yeah. of life and also of death. Uh, whereas Pip, by contrast, as as Pip says, like, with a great deal of scorn, Pip died a coward. Uh, and, uh... Changes what he wants Queequeg to do. Yes, because earlier he said, Queequeg, if you find lost Pip in the Antilles, comfort him. But now he says, if you find Pip, tell all the Antilles he's a runaway, a coward, a coward, a coward. Um, tell them he jumped from a whale boat. Uh, yeah, so so he's 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 changed his mind. He doesn't want... He no longer has any sympathy for poor, dead, lost Pip. He's now uh, partially critical of Yeah, yeah that all, all cowards should drown. Yes. Like Pip did. Yes. Um, uh, that's honestly got to be a very distressing thing for Queequeg to have to deal with at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think... I think that someone excoriating his own dead soul as a coward is something that would be disturbing for anyone to hear. Yeah, but especially if you're lying there 
busily dying in your own coffin. <laughs> Just trying to, like, die nobly in peace. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> However, he doesn't. Yes, he changes his mind. About it. <laughs> uh, yep, he, he very specifically changes his mind about it. Yeah, Queequeg gets better from his illness and uh, turns out not to need the coffin after all. And his his understanding about it, the way that Queequeg talks about this is that he remembered something he had to do on shore and decided, no, I can't die yet. And Queequeg earnestly believes that if you have made up your mind not to die, sickness can't kill you. Yep, yep. Uh, the way, you know, his, his crewmates ask him then whether to live or die was a matter of his own sovereign will and pleasure. He answered, certainly. In a word, it was Queequeg's conceit that if a man made up his mind to live, mere sickness could not kill him. Nothing but a whale or a gale or some violent, ungovernable, unintelligent destroyer of that sort. Presumably also other people, but, you know. Yeah, I did just think about, as you were reading that, like, what about a violent, ungovernable, intelligent destroyer? <laughs> like, surely... Oh, Queen... like the white whale. <laughs> well, but I just meant, like, surely Queequeg believes that if you are locked in mortal combat with another man, he can kill you even if you don't want him to. <laughs> yeah, and Queequeg is occasionally threatened to kill people, so yes. I think that it's specifically, like, sickness or, uh, you know, uh... You can't feebleness. Yeah, you can't waste away if you don't want to, or at least Queequeg can't. Yes, you can't waste away if you don't, in some sense, consent to. Which is, you know, not. I would not recommend taking this ideology out into the world. No, it's it's uh yeah. I mean, this is very much like a uh you know, um this is very much the belief of like a uh you know as someone a, who has just recovered from a fever. Well, yes, but I was also about to say like sort of a manly. Right? Like, of course, Queequeg believes in his own personal sovereignty over his own life, mm -hmm. right? Like, he, he is a, a, a figure of, like, paragon nobility. He, he, yep, yep. He, he would not, he, he would scorn at the deaths of lesser men for fitness. <laughs> yep, yep. Also, immediately after that, Ishmael says that, uh, that, um, this is the difference between someone who is, as he puts it, savage and someone who is civilized, is that a civilized man will take six months recovering from something like this, whereas Queequeg was fine in a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, this this is certainly the thing you were trying to talk, or not trying, thing you were talking about before, about, like, uh, the construction of, like, the savage or the pagan as kind of, like, full of vital energy, you know, um, that obviously that's what's going on here. Queequeg yep, is, yep. is easily brought back to full health and life. Yep. After a few days of not doing much work, but eating a lot, he suddenly leaped to his feet, threw out arms and legs, gave himself a good stretching, yawned a little bit, and then springing into the head of his hoisted boat and poison harpoon, pronounced himself fit for a fight. Yeah. So just what, very little downtime on Queequeg being prepared for whale murder. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, now he's using the coffin as a sea chest. Yep, yep. I mean, his... what are you going to do? You've got this uh, impressive wooden box. Got to put it to some kind of use. Yep. He also carves it. Yes. He specifically, um, and this is really something fascinating, which is, so he starts copying over his tattoos onto the coffin yes. as carvings. And we finally learn a little bit more, like, you know, this entire book, there has been this sort of sense that Queequeg's tattoos are, are mysterious and maybe have some kind of meaning. Yeah, the, I think it's definite that they're meaningful, but what exactly they mean has never been open to us. Yes, and at this point, I think we get what I 
what I imagine is probably going to be the clearest description of, of at least their source, mm -hmm. uh, which is that um, his tattooing had been the work of a departed prophet and seer of his island, who by those hieroglyphic marks had written out on his body a complete theory of the heavens and the earth and a mystical treatise on the art of attaining truth. Uh, so Queequeg is is basically like a living work of philosophy. Well, the way it's put is, Queequeg in his own proper person was a riddle to unfold, a wondrous work in one volume, but whose mysteries not even himself could read, though his own live heart beat against them. Yeah, and I don't know how much of that is meant to be that, like, Queequeg is, like, illiterate of the language that mm -hmm. is tattooed on him, or if it's just that Queequeg is not as sort of philosophically developed as the man who tattooed yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Or if, I mean, on some level, literally, Queequeg cannot read what's written on his own back. Yeah, that is also true. It's also entirely possible that this is, rather than being an existing language system, was this particular prophet's, like, invention and elaboration. Mm. So it could be, even if it's even if it's similar to other uh, sort of systems of tattooing that Queequeg grew up with, it's possible that being written by, like, a seer and a prophet this is going to be weird and difficult to understand. Yeah, Which yeah. also puts an interesting gloss on Queequeg going up to the doubloon and comparing it to symbols on himself. Yeah. He could have been looking, if it is supposed to be, you know, um, what was it, a complete theory of the heavens and the earth and a mystical treatise on the art of attaining truth. Queequeg could have been trying to apply it, trying to be like, okay, so what can this tell me about the world around me? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, you know, uh, this is, you know, on some level, it's like, of course it makes sense that Queequeg's tattoos contain, like, a complete theory and, like, mystical truth, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, like, uh, how could they not have been that significant? Yeah, yeah. Um, like, there was a, there's been a huge, complex set of symbols present in this narrative from the beginning, and, of course, given the kind of book it is, that those symbols were going to, like, speak of mysterious truth that no one is able to interpret. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think it's worth comparing to, because of the way hieroglyphic is used here, uh, is to the markings on the skin of a whale. Oh, yeah. Where, explicitly, those are hieroglyphics that we cannot decipher. These are of human creation and have human meaning, but they're still, uh, they're still mysterious. And I think on some level, by being mysterious, they are implied to be more important. Yes, I think that's true. And, in, and just like the, the, markings on the head of the whale, as we heard about in the Sphinx, um, these symbols, this meaning that can't be reached, uh, kind of torments Ahab. Um, the last sentence of the chapter, uh, and this thought, uh, the thought that, you know, Queequeg's tattoos will never be read. And specifically that when he dies, uh, they'll molder away and therefore be hidden forever. This thought it must have been which suggested to Ahab that wild exclamation of his, when one morning, turning away from surveying poor Queequeg, oh, devilish tantalization of the gods. So, like, Ahab kind of looks at Queequeg's tattoos as, like, something he will never be able to understand or attain and is, like, tantalized by it. Yeah, that there's this, there is knowledge or, you know, wisdom that in the world that, uh, not only Ahab won't have, but that the gods are sort of, you know, intentionally obscuring, that the world has its hidden qualities. And again, the Sphinx had a similar thing where the whale, who cannot speak, had, you know, dived, dove, had dove among the, you know, depths and the secret places and thus had witnessed all of this and contained all this knowledge. 
but could never put it forward. And I think there's that, it's generally sort of a, a Gnostic almost despair of Ahab's that there exist these knowledges that could potentially change or define things or rework your image of the world, but they're locked away and hidden in uh, unreadable symbols, in hieroglyphics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's Queequeg. That's Queequeg's coffin. Yep. And to some extent, uh, you know, we got the last, Queequeg's last word, Rarmai, and we got uh, an account of Queequeg's tattoos. I feel like it's fair to say that the book is starting to clean up loose ends. Yeah. Not like loose ends, really. This has been a, a major thread, but Queequeg is now set for the final sequences of the book as we're moving into the end. The character is sort of fully worked out. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think, I mean, unsurprisingly, since it's literally about his death, I think that this chapter in some sense kind of wraps up Queequeg. Yes. Uh, I'm sure Queequeg will continue to be in the narrative. I wouldn't be surprised if we get at least a couple more, like, interesting, meaty Queequeg, Queequeg thematics. This. Yeah, but but um, I do, yeah, it, it, it feels as though we are moving towards some kind of conclusion at this point. Looks at book. Uh, yes, yes, we are. <laughs> well, yeah. I, but I, I do think it's actually... Very interesting that the book has some sort of feeling of moving towards a conclusion because mm -hmm. in so many ways we've talked about like the pacing of this book and the, the structure of it seeming, you know, inartful, seeming like Ishmael's just writing down whatever comes to mind as he goes along. And uh, I Yeah, think, I mean, he, he still is. There's still going to be some of that. Absolutely. But I think that this is one of those moments that kind of speaks to the fact that the book is actually constructed. Yes. Um, and is actually, uh, does actually have, I think, overall a very, like, effective structure. It's just that it's an mm -hmm. effective structure that includes a lot of digression. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I think that part of it is that the actual voyage of the Pequod is itself structured very cleanly. Yeah. Like, you know, with the various ships it meets, with these various things. So it can look as though... Ishmael is very unartfully telling his own story, but then the story the story he has to tell, the experience he has, naturally do form a very effective structure so that even when he's digressive or he tells things out of order, it all falls together in a very effective way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Like, on some level, uh, Queequeg is bad at telling stories, but his life has been a you very... Ish sorry, Ishmael is bad at telling stories, but his life has been a very... His life throughout the book is a very well-structured story so even though he tells it in this haphazard manner it comes through very effectively yeah yeah i definitely have the feeling at this time so th uh the, the pequod has not yet reached the season on the line correct no i feel like that's gonna be when it happens <laughs> when what happens <laughs> it's been <laughs> i don't know the climax of the novel meeting moby dick Something big? Yeah, yeah. Whales are big, it's true. <laughs> but yes, we can we can begin the countdown to it. Uh, yeah. Whatever yeah. it is. The event. The moment. The the apotheosis, the uh the catastrophe. Or you catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Let's not be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no. We're not getting a you catastrophe. 
folks. We know we know this is not going to end well. I mean, also, like, I, I literally uh, know some things about how the end of this book goes, but mm. that's fine. Uh, you two listeners may have gathered from, like, pop culture, or not pop culture, just, like, culture in general, certain things about the conclusions of Moby Dick. There are maybe some, like, famous quotations you've heard. Uh, uh, yeah, and then everything went great. <laughs> uh, everything is always going great for me when I'm at Hell's Heart. Um, <laughs> Look, from Hell's Heart I spit at thee. It's gonna be great. It's gonna rule. Nothing could possibly go wrong if someone says something that cool. It's like in an action movie. <laughs> or James Bond. James Bond says a cool one-liner. You know he's gonna get away with it. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's actually stab at thee, not spit at thee. Yeah, no, you're right. It is. Um, but anyway, uh... He is, he is literally stabbing. He has a harpoon. But anyways. Uh, we are... Yes, we are getting closer to the climax. There are a few more miscellaneous things and some excellent Abraxas content that have yet to happen. Well, I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah, I look forward to that too. Um, but in the meantime, what tune is it we sing for, then? A dead whale or a stove boat? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>